Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This is not a diving podcast with Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not a Diving Podcast. And this week on the show, we have a legend of techno, someone who I've been listening to for as long as I've been listening to electronic music, to be honest. Um, he was a big inspiration to me when I first got started DJing. The Red Series was just huge for me in my early appreciation of techno and also his experimentations with electro and um, that side of his DJ sets and his just general musical output was super, super important for me too. So yeah, of course it's Dave Clark. We went on for quite a while on this conversation. Dave's someone who's been interviewed a lot. He has opinions on a really wide range of topics and that's reflected in the conversation on this week's show. Um, we get into some areas which have not much to do with music at all, which is absolutely fine. We do have a track record of doing that a little bit on this show. But Dave is someone who is unafraid to wade into waters which are not directly related to what he does for a living. So um, I really enjoyed doing that with him, digging around in the recesses of other topics because I actually enjoy doing that too and I've done that a fair bit in my own interviews sometimes to my detriment I have to say and I think Dave has had a similar experience in fact he, he mentions that during the course of today's conversation anyway I won't say too much more about it because it is long we're well over two hours I think on this episode so just before we get into it leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this I always say that, and I always say that I always say that, but it genuinely does help. 
I'm still looking into the various different potential ways that we have of raising a bit of cash to support the show. Don't want to do ads, but uh, there are a few options and I'm continuing to explore them. But until we do that, those ratings and reviews, wherever you're listening to this, really do help. So if you haven't done already, I would be eternally grateful if you did that right now. Join us in the Discord if you've got anything to say about the show hotfreshrecordings.com slash discord if you've got anything to contribute whatsoever or if you just want to talk about hot flush in fact because it's a hot flush discourse there's a not a diving podcast channel in there but if you want to talk about releases or anything else and that's the place to do it i'm in there all the time so if you want to ask me a question then there get in there and finally follow the spotify playlist of the show which contains much of the music that we talk about and all the episodes so I think that's about it. I'll be back after the conversation to chat a little bit more. But until then, without further delay, here is Dave Clark. Dave Clark, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm I'm all right, thanks. You're in Amsterdam, I take it. I am indeed. Been there for many years now, I, I believe. Yes, and after seeing the latest um uk headlines for a certain government i'm quite <laughs> glad to be here okay well i've got i've got a question about that. i've got a lot of questions about that um that we can get into um and actually to be honest like i wanted to actually start off by trying to establish something which i'm not completely sure about because you you give a lot of interviews and you quite often talk about stuff which is nothing to do with music like it's almost like I almost get the impression that you're sometimes a bit more comfortable talking about like politics than you are talking about music, but I don't know if that's true. But that's a separate question. But I just wanted to know if you like, do you have a kind of easily definable, easily kind of distinguishable, kind of like overall worldview, like twenty five words or less kind of synopsis that you could articulate? Because I mean, you talked a lot about like socialism and Thatcherism and you know various touch points like Tony Benn and but I've I've never really heard you articulate that kind of overall like top down view about where you're where you come from like all that stuff I think where I would say I came from was um justice um accountability and fairness um but to say I was listening to Cassie's podcast and she's quite right to say left or right now doesn't really mean anything so, you know, I can't really say I'm left or I can't, I'm definitely not right. But, you know, you can't really sort of attribute yourself to uh, a sort of binary position within politics anymore. It just doesn't exist. So my values are that I believe in fairness, I believe in justice, I believe in equal, um, equality, of course, and accountability. And those things uh, basically overbranch everything else. Right. OK, well, that, that does clarify things. A little bit. Do you think, like, in the context of like being British and you know everything that's happened, I guess post twenty six. I mean, twenty sixteen is the obvious date to, to kind of pull out of the air. But I guess you could come take it back to the the Tory government of well, the coalition government two thousand ten, maybe. But do you think that living in Europe, having been living in in Europe for you know a long time now, as we said, does that change the way you view Britain and British politics? Do you find? I mean, I, I've also lived in, in Europe for a long time now. I lived in Germany for a long time and I've been living in Spain now for a while. But was in the UK over the um, <laughs> the fateful period, the 2016 period. So, I mean, did you find yourself like thinking about it a bit differently from, from the kind of vantage point of where you are? I, I think that if anyone travels a lot, 
you see a lot and you experience a lot and you see things with a wider perspective. Um, which is also, if you read the news, if you just take the news in from certain points, uh, then you don't get the fuller perspective as well. So, you know, being fortunate enough to have travelled for 30 years or so uh, internationally has, of course, given me a much, much wider uh, view. Um, So I wouldn't say that living in Amsterdam has given me that wider view. I would say that living uh, living the life touring uh, gives you a wider view. It's like you have conversations with people at dinner and you talk about politics sometimes. Um, and, you know, I was in Helsinki uh, just before they were going to sign for NATO, but everyone knew they were going to sign for NATO. And you get an idea of how people are feeling as opposed to what you read in the newspapers um, or, or what you read uh, online. And that, of course, has given me a much bigger perspective. Um, Living in the Netherlands, the only thing that changed me about living in the Netherlands, apart from appreciating how uh, visually your tax money is actually spent and you can see it being spent, it doesn't just disappear and being promised to be spent every single budget under a new government. It actually does get uh, spent. was also that I lost a lot of the sort of bullshit status anxiety that existed uh, when I was living in the UK. And I'm not going to say that's just the UK. Obviously, that was my age and everything that I was going through at the time. But it's living in the Netherlands definitely changed that perspective. But did it change my worldwide view? No, not really. And I I don't really keep an eye much on Dutch politics, interestingly. Maybe that keeps me sane. Yeah, I mean, that that absolutely resonates. I mean, when I I lived in Germany, I did not engage in the political process there at all. And and likewise, in Spain, and maybe that's, that's, I guess, the the privilege of being an expat, right? You kind of like look back home sort of disapprovingly, but then are able to kind of rise above it in your immediate environment. Yeah, I'm not going to use the word expat either. I'm going to actually use the word immigrant because technically I'm an immigrant in in many ways um, because I'm not a European anymore uh, and therefore I'm living over here as an an immigrant. And, um, you know, I feel quite strongly about that as well. I think obviously a lot of white people call themselves expats because it sort of suits the the, uh, political stance of, of, of their sort of position. Whereas I prefer to say that actually I'm an immigrant to the Netherlands. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the, the term expat does have some sort of uh, slightly uncomfortable connotations, doesn't it? Yeah. With regards to sort of colonialism and all that. But let me just um, go back and just to unpack a couple of things you said previously. Like, So what's the difference between like the visibility of public spending in the Netherlands versus the UK then? Yeah, I mean, what happens in the UK is that uh, obviously you, uh, if you earn money, you get taxed, uh, which I think is completely right and completely fair. And if you earn more money, you get taxed more, which again, I think is completely right and completely fair. Um, so in the UK at the time that I, I left, it was like a tax of about 45%, I think it was. I think it was even 50 for a while, I can't remember. And um, and you think, okay, that's that's the way it is. But you don't see any of that money being spent on people. You don't see any of that money being spent on infrastructure. You just creak on by on the same old infrastructure that does its best to do its best, but it's not, as, as the Conservatives constantly say, fit for purpose. But it's not, it's not working at all well. And then you come over to the Netherlands and, you know, you can get public transport to the airport uh, and that will cost you maybe three or four euros, depending if you've got like a discount card or not from, from Amsterdam. It works. 
uh, which sounds crazy. You should expect that public transport works. But every, try, every time that I tried to rely on public transport in the UK, it didn't work very well and cost a shitload of money for the privilege of it not working very well. Um, and then, of course, you know, you've got various things like roads, uh, which never got fixed at all. Uh, your council tax kept going up and up and up and up and up, but nothing was actually there to um, sort of show for it. Except, I will say this, except for recycling, that the UK really did lead uh, comparatively to the Netherlands in recycling uh, on a personal uh, basis. Um, but generally, you, you look at things, you think, oh, okay, the money is going to fund an illegal war, the money's going on munitions to send on an illegal war, and you don't see the money being spent fairly within society. It's not visual. And and here you see it all the time, things are being repaired, things are being replaced. Uh, I don't really see many homeless people in um, Amsterdam, at least, um, more so in Utrecht for some reason, but you don't really see that many uh, homeless people here. And I'm not sure if that means that they've got a better system, but it seems fairer over here. It just seems fairer. It seems like your money is actually being spent on the people. And it, I, I never had that feeling in the UK. So you mentioned military spending there. And obviously that's a topic of, um, well, it's just a topic that is being discussed right now. And particularly in well Germany, but also I think other countries in Europe who are members of NATO who haven't done their 2% thing that they're supposed to on the terms of a treaty. So, I mean, like what everything you've just said there absolutely resonates and the UK does sort of like feel like it's being held together by sellotape sometimes um, infrastructure wise most of the time let's be honest let's be honest most of the time yeah sure and well I mean I was going to ask if you had any any observations about why that might be but let me just ask you about the the military thing first now that we're in this whole Ukraine thing and obviously it's it's kind of bleeding over into the music scene and I want to ask you about that but tell me about yeah, yeah. Tell me about how you see the importance of military spending. Because you've actually talked about this in, in previous interviews. There's, there's not many topics that you haven't discussed actually in previous interviews. I've discovered this morning having read a bunch of them. Sorry, but uh, <laughs> but yeah. Tell me about how you how you view the kind of expenditure of of, of tax on in in that kind of a way in in the context of what we're going through now. You mean um, a sort of hypothecation of taxes towards supporting Ukraine defending itself? Is that what you mean? Well, I mean, that, that's that's the current manifestation. I mean, you, you put it in terms of illegal wars, which is absolutely right in, in the, last, the last 20 years. Oh, the last 20 years. Uh, well, that's, you know, there's so many things that have gone on in the last 20 years. You've had um, Blair launch that illegal war, which none of us wanted. Uh, well, some people did, I assume, but uh, most of us didn't and actually marched against it. Um, uh, and none of us wanted that. We we knew there were no weapons of mass destruction, just by instinct, really, and there weren't any proven, which I suppose is a miracle that that actually got admitted. Um, and then, of course, you have Bush um, Jr., or as Gore used to call him, uh, Gore Vidal used to call him Baby Bush, um, go on the microphone is like, uh, yeah, we're, you know, uh, invading sovereign countries like uh, Iraq, oh, sorry, Ukraine, you know, they're, the context of, of, the, of the last 20 years is so complex to actually discuss within five or 10 minutes. It's, you know, it's, it's too difficult. Obviously, things like Iraq wasn't, uh, wasn't right. Things sure, like I mean, the, the reason why, I, if I could just jump in and say, the, re- the reason why I put it in, in, in that context is because obviously, you know, people have, as a result of the Ukraine thing, maybe, maybe if not changed their minds, then, you know, had a bit of a rethink maybe about what they thought about military spending. So how do you, how do you see that? I think military spending is sad. Um, 
it, it's necessary if you've got uh, at least two opposing sides, because otherwise, if you don't, then you're fucked. But I think it's, it's really sad. Uh, you know, you look at military spending, of course, some good things come from it, like GPS. Without military spending, we wouldn't be able to not get lost in Birmingham, which, no offence to everyone in Birmingham, but once you... I used to go there without GPS, and it used to be pretty easy to get lost. Um, so some military spending obviously has benefits for, for the public, but the majority of military spending is just indicative of how sad society is, that it needs to fight each other. Um, as opposed to actually grow together. So, you know, with wars that are going on now, um, of course, it's, it's horrendous on the ground level. It's horrendous for, for personal tragedies. Um, it's also horrendous for, for, for the world uh, in many, many different ways that it's going to start fracturing and utilise social media to enable uh, exceptionally black and white um, uh, positioning of, of most people. And, and also let us not forget that it's going to fuck up the world again environmentally because you know, a war blowing up stuff and people uh, and, and cities and then rebuilding cities, it just causes immense environmental damage on top of all the injustice. But if you got uh, opposing sides basically sabre-rattling at each other, then sadly you do need a military budget. Yeah, I mean, inevitably, unfortunately, right? And particularly if your... Yeah. Particularly if your energy policy means that you're exposed to said military adversary. Exactly. It's it's like, oh shit, we can't have... um, any any stuff from from Russia right now because they're bad, but it's okay to go to Saudi Arabia because oh they're a little bit bad but not as bad as Russia right now, so that's okay as well. Well, it's not okay, and maybe this is a, a, a shake up energy wise for the world to actually realise that you need to be dependent upon your own resources should things happen uh, that are bad and out of out of your control. But most people knew that um, Ukraine was like the Saskatchewan of Europe, that it was the wheat basket of Europe. Everyone fucking knew that. And we're all trading with everyone, but the actual basis of trade is also actually sort of blackmail to not have war, as opposed to uh, allowing things to, to, to happen in a, in a decent way. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And to me, it's just been obvious for ages that this is going to happen sooner or later with Russia. And actually, I mean, you were on record nearly 10 years ago as saying that Russia was something that has had to be, was going to have to be confronted at some point, I think. Maybe not in quite those terms, but you were definitely talking about it. But um, I, <laughs> I, want, I want to get on to, to music, but like, you know, we're sort of sitting here, two musicians talking about geopolitics, and you, you, you previously said oh, in an interview, sh- we can't do that. We're, we're not allowed to do that. No, no, sh- shut up and play the music, Paul. No, 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 we can't do that. This is we- exactly my question. So you you said previously that like talking about politics as a musician is, is basically frowned upon, and so like seen as something you can't do. But I mean, actually, like in the period sort of since since 2016, but also I mean p- particularly since probably 2020 and the BLM movement and all that, do you think that's changed at all? Do you think do you think musicians are given a bit more kind of a bit more leeway to talk about wider issues now in a way that they probably weren't up to that point? Would you say that I'm a cynical bastard, Paul? I mean 
<laughs> if you're about to say something about a manipulation of the media, um, I would I would be on and on that. Not necessarily. My, my cynical view on all of this is that while some politics are indeed mentioned by some artists, you will find that there has been some sort of um, management forum talk with some of these artists to find out if it's advantageous for them to actually express these politics as opposed to expressing politics of the heart. I express politics of the heart, whether I'm right or wrong, and it costs me. I get blacklisted because I express politics. Um, the people that will do mention politics now is like they will... I mean, the jokes are everywhere from from the world-famous uh, Twitmeg to, to other sites as well. It's like, you know, like, oh, look, yes, we're picking up plastic, but I need someone to come in the private plane to film me picking up plastic and this and that and the other. It, it's There's a lot of greenwashing going on, um, which isn't, isn't from the heart, but, you know, with a, 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 a non-scrupulous press or non-existent scrupulous press, they get away with it. And they're seen as like, oh, you're so wonderful. This is amazing. And no one's actually sort of putting scrutiny on this. Well, hang on a minute. You know, what's your position on this really? And I'm cynical on on a lot of um, uh, newer artists. And I don't mean because they're newer, but the newer artists that have a different business model. uh, I'm cynical on, on their political views. Um, really, really cynical on their political views. And after talking to many, 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 many people traveling around the world, you, you do understand what the situation is. And then you also understand that people are actually putting their careers first and then their political views will only be to support their career as opposed to actually saying something really, really from the heart. And of course, that doesn't include uh, Black Lives Matter because, I mean, we come from um, a situation where a lot of our music came from from the black community, and from from for those for those people for that community, it's it's obviously from the heart because it's an injustice that's been going on for a very very long time. But then you are, you see other people bandwagon jumping to get likes, and it's quite distasteful. Yeah, and it's pretty clear that. Well, it's been pretty clear to me for a while that like you are expected now to have a view, but it's an it's, it's a very explicit, predefined view that you must have and you must articulate. But- yeah, I, I agree. I mean, there's there's a lot of pressure on people to articulate what uh, they have to articulate. Uh, and that's also possibly why management will get involved and actually make sure that they don't put their foot in it for their career's sake. But a lot of people are also scared to talk out um, from from the heart. And I think that that's a big loss to the scene. Um, obviously, we started off very much in reaction to the the world that was going on politically. It doesn't mean that it has to stay that way, and this is the status quo for for what goes on for the for the for the rest of the community from this point on. But from from our perspective, starting off being anti-apartheid, being very vocal about it, um, anti-Nazi, being very very vocal about it, and actually going to demonstrations. And, and and now it's not like that. And of course, everyone has access to everyone's thoughts all the time if they just go online and say something. So that's also changed. There's no mystique or there's no depth allowed really on any position, um, which, you know, in the um, sort of attention deficit media driven world we're in, which we're all, you know, subject to uh, there just isn't that depth anymore it's like if you read magazines uh, digitally Uh, you don't generally read them as deep as you used to when they were actually on paper it's 
that's how we're programmed now. We just like, oh, let's look at this. Oh, yeah, I got the gist of it. It's enough. Move on. And and that's also society. So I'm not finger pointing at any particular people. It's the way that society has moved everything on. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like even within the BLM thing, you know, as, as kind of white guys talking about it, I'm I'm conscious of the you know the kind of out, outsider aspect. But you know, I think even within that, there's you know there's diversity of opinion within you know just looking from the. Like, you know, the African-American debate on it, like it's definitely not like one voice. Like there are definitely dissenting views in there. And I wonder what it's like being a, you know, being an African-American artist. And if you don't necessarily agree with, with the whole thing, it must be extremely difficult too, frankly. Yeah. Uh, and I do know some African-American artists that have slightly different views and, and get chastised for that because they don't fit into the, uh, the, the narrative as well, which, uh, you know, it seems like we as a society are in a position where it's almost, and I'm not going to quote Seneca, so you don't have to worry, but we're almost in the, the Roman uh, sphere of, of the thumb up, thumb down situation, where it's basically no nuances on anyone's opinion whatsoever. It's either it doesn't fit with my narrative, thumbs down, it, it does fit my narrative, hero. And as opposed to, oh, okay, let me think about that. that, that that's society right now. It's either thumbs up or thumbs down. That's it. Yeah, I mean, you just just referred to a certain person who's um, <laughs> been in the news recently. I don't know if we need to mention them by name. But like, do you have any kind of sympathy for people who are, oh, I don't know, how shall I put this? Um, people whose, whose position might be compromised, you know, societally, who find it difficult to get on board with certain things which they are, which are expected of them, put it that way. The thing that I find incredibly difficult is if you know someone a little bit or medium, and you know what their political position is because they've been exceptionally clear on it when you've had conversations with them. And then they change their position to suit the public narrative as opposed to just being really quiet and saying nothing from the very, very beginning. Right. That's the difficulty I have. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, totally. I mean, if, if someone is, well, it's, as you say, like if someone is really talking genuinely, like authentic, I don't like the word authentic to be honest, but like, because it's just a bit hard to pin down. But like if someone is really serious, I guess, then I, I find myself I'm I'm able to f- to forgive them quite a lot if you if, well f- forgive them is maybe the wrong word but I'm I'm able to accept views which are pretty f- steeply divergent from my own if I think they're sort of sincerely held right yeah well that's the difference uh, if you look back at certain political debates say I mentioned Vidal earlier Gore Vidal between Gore Vidal and William Buckley you can see there's two intellects on both sides of the coin uh, holding their political beliefs and it doesn't matter directly if you agree or disagree with uh, one person or another if you actually can listen to it and actually absorb it for what it is um, and then still hold your own position afterwards I think that's you, you learn from those sort of things but if you immediately go nope this person is evil this person is that then you don't and, and this is politics now this is it's not just in our musical scene it's within politics politics now they can just basically get away with anything because it no one really cares anymore yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's weird because I don't think it's not that no one cares because like people seem to be more wound up about things than ever. There just seems to be like I don't know. It just seems to be like a, there's no there's a complete lack of shame. I think in the political sphere. I mean, as as has been played out right in in recent weeks in in the UK, which you talked about. Yeah, but also it's absolutely true in America, and and definitely parts of Europe are going the same way. I mean, like yeah, the front- well, the, the biggest. The biggest issue was 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 Trump, because he won uh, that that one election, and his narcissism and his way of talking 
was rewarded by holding the ultimately highest position of power on the planet. And everyone thinks, well, hang on a minute, if he can get that position from being narcissistic, uh, insincere, uh, all those other things that generally were not really regarded as, as brilliant leadership attributes, but he can still get the position, everyone thinks, well, fuck it, I'm in for it, this as well. And that, that's how you see it trickle down, trickle down, trickle down. So it's not only within, um, say, uh, music journalism, the whole of journalism has been watered down, either that's because of lack of advertising or, or whatever, or, or editorial pressure. It's It's been watered down and there's not really that much um, scrutiny, like I mentioned earlier on. And with the, so, yeah, you're right, people do care, but still they vote for the same people dis- despite knowing how those people in power actually view the population. They still vote for them. And... And therefore, the longer this goes on, the more horrendous leaders they're going to be. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like it's it's gone deeper as well. It's gone it's gone really deep in society, more than just journalism. And I think like I, I'd actually like go further back than Trump. Like a lot of what I see in it is the George W. Bush mentality. Actually, it's like the, it's if you're either you're with us or you're against us. That was the kind of whole basis of the war on terror. And I see that just everywhere now. Like, it's like, if you're not on board with this thing that I, I, you know, I am holding to the highest moral authority, then you can basically do one. Exactly. And, and it's like, it's pervasive, like on all parts, in all parts of the, of politics, on all, on all areas of the political spectrum. I mean, like there are areas of like the kind of social justice movement, which are absolutely like that. And in a real, a really kind of aggressive way. And it's, it's difficult to, you know, I, I sort of characterize my own politics as like, like I am like of the left, but not on the left. Like I've, I've, I've you know, I, I absolutely like, you know, align myself with the, with the kind of broad ideals of it. But the, the left as a kind of political movement really leaves me cold a lot of the time or, so, or worse. Sorry, go on. So you would, de- you would define yourself as a champagne socialist or a Bollinger Bolshevik? <laughs> maybe, maybe the latter. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm a champagne socialist. I definitely come from a champagne socialist family. God, my, uh, my parents are very much North London card-carrying Labour Party members who very much got back on board when Jeremy Corbyn came in, even though, uh, even though he wasn't necessarily um, <laughs> up their street in terms of finance. But um, the way I see it is it's like, well, actually, to be honest, like, I think part of what, what annoys me so much about the left is that it is so middle class and it is so sort of geared towards what sort of a middle class person's idea of what equality should be or what um, what solidarity should be. Yeah. And I think like since the 70s, the whole class divide thing, the whole class warrior thing, I mean, I don't want to put it as a class warrior thing, actually, just class solidarity as the kind of central plank of the left really is just like it's, it's just ebbed away. Earlier on, you were saying differences between England and the Netherlands. Well, you definitely feel much less of a class uh, structure here. Uh, People uh, generally seem to be able to get access to free and good quality education across the board. Um, And people generally seem to be, um, of course, I'm saying this from central Amsterdam, but, you know, I have been to other cities, I've got friends in other cities. It seems in comparison to the UK much more equal um, in the way that things are run. So in a way, I suppose there is a bigger middle class than there ever was before. And of course, middle class equals middle ground. And that's what 
all politicians, and let's switch it back to music, and a lot of the, the new generation of, of artists are heading towards, is the middle ground, as opposed to actually, again, stating anything um, on, on behalf of, of music itself. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm also very happy to talk about music as well, by the way, just letting you know, or even production, if you want to. I mean, I, I do have a long list of questions, um, not all of which are about politics. So yeah, um, I'll hold, hold tight on that. But um, I mean, just talking about you personally, though, like obviously, because you, you know, you've got a long history of being like fairly like, outspoken, I think it's fair to say, going back to the 90s. And I think like people have had quite strong opinions of you. And I wonder, like, I mean, and quite strong opinions of you, which have often been unfair and actually just a mischaracterization of you. And how much of that do you think is is due to you being willing to talk about stuff other than music? Um, I think it's more to do with uh, character as opposed to, you know, actually not talking about stuff. Uh, maybe, I mean, but again, you know, politically, musically, I, I grew up on hip hop, I grew up on punk and I grew up on the early parts of House, which is... Very, very political music. So not to talk about politics is is is, is difficult and I think is wrong. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the press where, you know, the amount of times I was misquoted or I would say something very, very uh, small in, in a certain context and then that would be the quote that they use and then everyone goes, see, this is what this guy... And not taking the quote into, into actual context is, is, is a very typical thing. I mean, there was... Uh, a fucking horrible journalist by the name of Paul Clark, who basically said that I was a Tory and actually pu- published that. <laughs> and, you know, what can you do once someone has published something like that, then it's, you're always backtracking. Where, where was that published? Uh, DJ Mag. And I'm also, you know, I want to be clear, I'm not a fucking Tory. I think it's pretty clear that I'm not a fucking Tory. Uh, I'm not ever going to be a fucking Tory. Um, but, you know, this this guy had a bee in his bonnet and basically published that I was a Tory. And then it was fucked thereafter. Uh, yeah, what can you do? Um, and you get misquoted a lot. And I learned a lesson actually from Orbital uh, when I was in a room with them when we were all talking about something, I think, for Music Magazine. They actually recorded their own um, uh, interviews so that if anything happened, they can go, well, hang on a minute, I actually said this. And I, I did learn that afterwards. It's like, you should record everything. Um, I never did because that's just like paranoid. But I understood that, you know, it's not actually necessarily, um, you're not going to be put in, the, in, the, in an honest light. It, there, there's a context going on somewhere. Either a journalist wants to have a bigger career or the magazine has a certain thing. So there's always a context and you have to be aware of that. Yeah. So you mentioned there, like growing up with punk and well particularly punk but also obviously early sort of dance music and like how political those movements were and one of the things i wanted to talk about was counterculture and the way that counterculture has sort of been co-opted by sort of corporate forces over the years well let's be let's be absolutely clear counterculture does not exist in 95% of 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 dance music's output anymore it just does not. It just does not exist. It's we. Uh, I think seven years ago, six years ago, I was saying that um, techno is going to learn from the EDM management school and bring it in. It did, um, and it's 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 become a money driving activity now. And money is is the prime concern. Counterculture does not exist. It is consumerism. 
the dance music forum uh, environment, uh, dance music environment is consumerism 95% of the time when you look at certain countries. And, 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 you know, that's why I say that the actual vibe of Ibiza is Thatcherite, because it's completely Thatcherite. And while some uh, some DJs way back in when, I think maybe I'm wrong, so, you know, I'm, I'm not saying 100%, but I, I believe people like Jazzy B from Soul to Soul were saying things like the Thatcherite um, sort of movement helped them become entrepreneurs, which enabled them to then succeed. So some good can happen, but the actual vibe of the whole Thatcherite thing is so abhorrent. And if you look at Ibiza, Ibiza for me truly is majoritively Thatcherite. Yeah, I, wanna, I definitely want to talk about Ibiza because I, I witnessed uh, you playing in Ibiza, actually, um, if you remember, a few years ago at Space. I do. You were sitting on my right and it was in space and you sort of poked me in the ribs. I, I'm it scuba. Was, it, was, it was funny. But uh, going back to counterculture, like how do you define counterculture? Because by definition of the word, it seems it seems to imply something which is like opposed to the prevailing winds within the kind of cultural world, right? Presumably. Yeah. If there was counterculture in dance music, what would it be? So going back to the roots of it, uh, and my, my, my sort of experience of that was counterculture was all the people that you disliked at school would not come to your gig because only the weird, perceived weird people would go to those gigs. And there were just, it wasn't like a normal thing to do. So all of us that were at school, that were the weirdos, that were the bullied, that were pushed away, um, beaten up, uh, told to fuck off, all of us at school that were swapping our electro mixtapes um, would sort of see each other in a club somewhere. Too young, of course, but we'd see each other in a club in the corner go, and we'd give each other a nodding look. It's like, uh-huh, yeah, I get it. This is a safe place for us because... This is alternative and the music is not the status quo. And so you didn't have what was called bro techno. And bro techno is like all pervasive now. It's it's everywhere. And everyone that you hated from school, um, if you're a nerd, if you're weird, if you're slightly autistic, if you're just out there a little bit different, don't fit into uh, what the status quo is, those people are now in the gigs. And... That that's not counterculture. Uh, maybe that sounds elitist, but that's it's just not counterculture, and it's not just a musical thing. Um, I, I I'm also into photography. Uh, I also like other things as uh, um, on to, on top of that that I also follow, and even photography as an art has also changed. Art itself has changed. Fashion itself has changed, and I think also because. I mean, Jesus, you had, I, I, I always get, I don't follow these people, but I think it's like Kim Kardashian. And I always get really confused about Kim Kardashian because I always think she should have been in a Star Trek episode against the Romulans, the Kardashians versus the Romulans. It sounds more sort of what it should be. But anyway, I think all of a sudden they decided they're goth, right? All of a sudden they are goth. And therefore that means like white skin and, and, and long fingernails and black clothes and they're goth. That's it. What's happened now is, again, going back to social media, again, going to the internet, is that if something flashes, everyone has access to it at the same time. So there's no waves of people like, ah, I know this. Yeah, yeah, we keep it here. We do this, we do that. That's gone now. It's all absolutely instant, just in the same way that when records were made in the 90s and maybe beginning of the 2000s, 
they had a shelf life, whether it is digital or whether it is actually uh, released on vinyl, they had a shelf life of, you know, six weeks minimum, six to nine months maximum forever for those classics. Music itself doesn't really have a shelf life anymore in, in the dance music thing because it, everything is a fast turnover. Cool. Okay, next. Cool. Okay, next. And that's the difference between now and then is that everything is instant and people can catch on to it wherever they are in the world at that particular moment. Of course, some people are going to say that's great. And of course, they're going to be some great examples. But that killed counterculture because there's no creep of, 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 of a subculture coming through, maturing without pressure. That's gone. So it's almost like uh, an analogy of the mangroves disappearing once again. So the mangroves were where, you know, like obviously young marine animals would grow up and then go to the ocean, but it's also the mangroves were where culture, subculture would actually just grow slowly under its own uh, steam and, and then just become interesting and then have a longevity attached to it. And that's disappeared. So how much of all that is like the the sort of byproduct of digitization generally and and the kind of like ever encroaching sort of tentacles of tech and how much is due to like individual actors within dance music would you say it's absolutely due to uh digital um you know some of the vinyl purists uh i didn't feel all their arguments but one of the arguments that they did have is like you know the the shop with his moody shop <laughs> shop workers would be also the gatekeepers and keep everything going and they're, they're, the shop would be like the social centre of various different scenes you'd have like a drama based shop you'd have a techno shop a house shop and those shops would germinate the music that would come out slowly but surely I don't mean to sound like a um, um, <laughs> war of the world um, but, but slowly and surely the, the stuff would come out in, in that way and now with digitization, everything is instant. Um, there's no real honesty in the charts. Uh, and therefore, things don't really have an honest value. And therefore, this is why I, I think a lot of uh, artists are ghost produced now, because the real value is just brand as opposed to actually sonics. And if the brand has, has a strong value, um, then that's their, that's their direction they need to go in. And no one's really leading the charge and actually really going straight for like a label of Sonics within dance music in the same way that they used to. Of course, there's a few... Uh, I'm generalising sometimes, and that's probably one of the things that annoys people. But if I look at it as, as an umbrella over the whole thing, it's, it's brand reinforcement is the main driver of, of a majority of labels now. And that's why the stuff is ghost produced. So, okay. So you, you said that value is in like brands basically, as opposed to Sonics and, and that's, yeah, absolutely clear. Like how much of, how much of all this is just due to the excess of supply of music now, because there's just so much more of it. And that's because of digital distribution as well, as you kind of talked about, but also um, kind of tools, which enable anyone to make music, how much of that is significant in the kind of forces that you're talking about? Yeah, it's, it's massively significant, but I'm not going to really put that down because by putting that down, then you're sort of stopping the democracy of people that might not have had a chance to make music in the same way that those people that put down the sync button 
have also enabled that the sync button itself has enabled people that maybe have a great taste of music that couldn't put the music together technically having a voice and i think that's also really important to say that's a positive because there are, are positives within within all of this but i think uh, you know that there are still amazing artists making music now and I also want to talk about that and, and the fact that these artists are still pushing and challenging and making incredible techno is what I would define as techno. It still exists. It's not completely bad, but the priority now for the majority of things is, is get rich quick, really. Totally. So, so what was the what was the turning point then that you identified there? It was like basically ED, the, the kind of, the, well, the kind of expertise and in infrastructure, the business expertise, I mean, and infrastructure around EDM seeping into techno, like in ad additionally, obviously to the, to the wider tech forces that you talked about, like that sounds like something that you see as being significant too, right? Yeah, I, th I think that happened about six, seven, eight years ago. And I, I talked about it at the time when I was allowed to be doing press interviews, which I've been blacklisted for now, which is fun. Um, but, I I, I, but, I, but I talked about it at the time because it was so obvious what was going on. And what was going on is I think it's perfectly acceptable to take the piss out of people sometimes. But the piss that was being taken out of some of these EDM artists by some so-called underground artists was actually just jealousy. Really. Um, it was just that you guys have all of this and we don't. And you would read certain DJs uh, when I used to bother with Twitter before Trump got on there. You'd read certain DJs that would actually be to say, hey, I'm sitting next to this EDM DJ. Ha ha ha. They're wearing these clothes. Ha 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 ha. And now they have a national radio show. <laughs> it was obviously just jealousy that actually drove this as opposed to feeling that they need to oppose something or, or, or just have a laugh about something in the same way that the punks kind of did is it was just pure jealousy it was like we did what they're saying is like we should have had this attention they don't deserve it and that's that that, that was also the driving force of changing things whereas people like just wanted to uh, take over edm uh, and come up with some bullshit things like yeah if we take over edm then you know more people are going to be into techno which has turned out to be true, but as you and I know, that what's called techno now is not techno, it's just another remarketing. And this, I think this started for me alongside Minimal. I think Minimal came along at a time where digitization was really starting to form its wings and fly, and marketing came into place. And marketing then started to look like really shady Star Wars trailers. <laughs> and really shady, like, Kiss album covers. And then the marketing came in. Really, minimal was the thing that brought in marketing in, in Really? I'd, I'd, never, I'd never kind of put it down to that before, but, I mean, I can sort of see what you mean. Yeah, there was a kind of very heavy uh, emphasis on imagery and, and personal image around that, wasn't there? Yeah. I mean, is there, is there a reason for that, or is it just something that happened? Uh, I think it's, it's management. Um and seeing a financial, seeing a financial um, possibility above a musical possibility, uh, and that's what's happened within music. Uh, I, I have no objection to true artists um, being paid what they're worth for bums on seats, none whatsoever. Um, but I do have an objection for artists that then change their whole view and put money as the prime driver above everything else because that changes. And if you have enough artists doing that, which has already happened, then the scene itself has to change to form into that anyway. And there's no real hope for 
uh, a change in the next couple of years unless there's a massive, massive recession. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been, it's kind of been a kind of slow professionalization of the whole industry. I think probably going back, yeah, yeah to like 15 years, say, like to, or a little bit longer maybe, to the kind of point that you're talking about. But I mean, it, it's easy to kind of look back on like the, the prior era with kind of rose-tinted spectacles, I guess. Or, or certainly there's a danger of doing that. And I don't know how you feel about that because I mean obviously there are there are, there, are, there are problems with well when you've got a like a big cultural phenomenon which the dance scene was in the 90s say coming out of acid house and I do want to ask you about acid house but just like look, looking at that and how big it got and like how shady it like areas of it was I mean areas of it were um and obviously there are, the the music industry itself is pretty shady but I mean I guess was 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 there a kind of alternative path do you think that could have been or maybe still could be kind of achieved whereby these things the kind of more pernicious things that you've just described are kind of less prevalent i think there has to be like a a severe cultural shock so when brexit happened which predictably did i knew that musically that certain genres would come alive again and there'd be a much more punky um, attitude, which I, I, I try to put onto my other radio show, uh, which is like an alternative show. Um, but that's the thing with music, with lyrics. You can be vociferous about something that you, held, you hold high in disdain or something that you really admire or something that you really like. You can put that into, into lyrics. You can react about it. You can be a political voice. I mean, I think the ultimate... English political voice uh, song at that time was Ghost Town, obviously, by the specials. You can't really do that in techno really now with... Mm, 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 tss, tss, tss. It doesn't flow those emotions. It serves now to just really be sort of just background music. Yeah. And we talked about this a little bit with Cassie, actually, and it was kind of like comparing the sort of, I guess, the positive... Aspects for for ninety five percent of the people, by the way. Of course, there's again amazing artists that are actually challenging orally people and doing some some amazing things with programming and production. I just want to make that clear because there is there's a massive difference between what's perceived as techno now, what's called as techno, and what really is techno. And I'm still in the camp of what really is techno, whereas most people are are in the camp now of of what's perceived to be as techno. Yeah, I mean, that's something I talked about with Surgeon, actually. We were talking about the kind of, the, the tendency of the of, of techno as a scene to be quite conservative, but actually how it's able to reinvent itself sonically, uh, taking influences and taking, you know, just borrowing bits from, from places, other scenes, which just enable it to be sort of seemingly like fresh over time, you know? And yeah, but, but let me just, just go back to what we we're saying about well, the, the comparison I made with with Cassie, with the ability of hip hop to be like extremely like forward thinking in terms of its message and, and a way it's kind of like reinvented itself in the last ten years, away from that kind of stereotypical kind of nineties hip hop thing in terms of its messaging, and whether that's possible. I mean, like we, you, know, you just mentioned that the, the lack of lyrics make it tough in in dance music, techno specifically, but just in dance music generally to actually carry a, a sort of explicit political message. I mean, is, is, that, is, is that at all possible? I mean, does it necessarily rely on lyrics? I think now with uh, so many people being into what's perceived to be as techno, 
to actually, I mean, you only have to look and I don't actually look because like for my own mindset, I actually uh, don't follow many people that are actually in that, in that part of the scene on, on Insta or anything. But sometimes you get sent something and then you click on it. If you only look at the comments that are underneath that kind of artist um, uh, profile, you know there is no hope in being able to talk about anything of a deeper level because of the marketing that those people have gone through and the amount of people, the people that we didn't like at school, actually in the room at that particular moment. So that I don't see, you know, obviously there's been in the past different types of politics with Evolved, um, with, with Techno from Spiral Tribe, um, House of God, of course, uh, even Atomic Jam, you know, Atomic Jam had its own sort of political thing, uh, whereas it, it was, again, primarily about the music, but then, of course, about a lot of day glow and shit as well. Um, now, I don't see that at all. You, you might have, like, a sort of an idea for a particular party that might include inflatable alligators or something, and that, yep, we're going to the inflatable alligator party, that's the one we're going to. But th- th- there's no... Everything's so safe now when i when i say safe i don't mean like people not beating each other up uh, i mean everything is so safe everything is so decided no one really bucks the trend anymore and that's got to be money right i mean it's been like it's just very obvious from the way that big parties yeah work and the, just the way the extent to which like festivals drive the calendar now yeah i mean you also have some some djs that will come out and go yeah i'm done with business techno now <laughs> i'm not playing it anymore and you're thinking do you actually understand that business techno is actually a verb? <laughs> it's a fucking verb. It's not actually a sound. It's a verb. And that person was absolutely business techno. So, and you just think, oh Christ, this is another, another PR stunt of, of, of some inane commentary that hold, holds no, no, uh, no value intellectually whatsoever, except to try and say, I was the first that said it, see? And, and, and then they carry on with their business techno uh, verbiage. Okay, so... Let's, let's talk about good shit now, Paul. Come on, let's... <laughs> well, okay. I'm going to give you an... Op- I've, Come I've on. Been, I've... <laughs> this is turning into sports punditry on, on the good times of Nottingham Forest since uh, and how it's been bad since Brian Clough isn't there. Uh, come, let's, let's... Hey, listen, I, I've been... I've been trying to steer you in, in directions that will give you an opportunity to say something positive. <laughs> <laughs> but my next question, though, was going to... We're always hopefully going to yield something a little bit more... A little bit more... Uh, good a little bit more positive um i wanted to ask you about how, how much diversity is there around the world as like in terms of like your experiences as a touring dj mm-hmm. over over obviously many years but like just talking about like the kind of period that we're talking about like the last say the last 10 years or so like i'm guessing there's going to be places and, and certainly my experience would indicate that there are places which are much less tainted by all this but talk to me a little bit about that and how you see that. You have, you have to explain that a little bit more. What's, what's the point? Diversity or tainted? Well, I mean, I mean, like in, I mean in, in different geographical locations around the world, right? The, the dance scene has sort of styled itself as being this global thing really since day one. And it's as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the, like, how I was going to ask this question, it kind of occurred to me that like, you know, the last 30 years have really been globalisation. That's, that's been the main trend over that time. And dance music has absolutely embraced that in terms of in terms of the whole thing. And it's like, but how is that 
like how has that played out in terms of like the way techno has has developed and and developed in this kind of largely negative way that we've been talking about but are there places that, that have kind of bucked that trend that you've noticed well the thing the cool thing about techno and house music uh way back when up until maybe 10 years ago was it was global um and that meant that there were local artists and local scenes um, but we could all go together and speak the same language. So that was global. But globalization itself is not a great thing, uh, but it's inevitable by the way that society runs itself now, which is why we only have like maybe four or five different kinds of apple that we're eating, one type of banana that we're eating, because it's packageable, it's global, and then we're not getting any diversity at all. Um, and you see that in certain lineups, like the lineups are the same, because I think there's like two or three conglomerates that are running the majority of festivals within Europe at least. And therefore, all the local people that would have used to work there are not there anymore. It's, it's become, you know, taken down. It's like, I remember once I was playing at a festival and all of a sudden it's like, uh, you can only have like four guest lists, including yourself. And I was like, whoa, you know, I've never taken the piss with a guest list. And this is a really successful festival. What's going on here? It was indicative of how things were being run top down by singular entities that this is the new thing. This is how it happens. This is what's going on. No personal interaction anymore. Whereas you used to be able to go and play things like Dance Valley, um, uh, Sidget and other festivals. And you felt that you are at a local festival playing to an international crowd. So that's your global part with a language that everyone understood, which was obviously like the challenging music. Now, with the globalization, what's happened is that certain companies have taken the reins, a lot of venture capitalists got involved, and therefore the choice, it's what I call the, and I try and say this, it's not an easy word to say, the supermarketization of our scene. And what that means is that when we first started the scene, like everything, we would go to little local shops, get personal service, special things would happen, things would be put aside for you. Then we go to slightly bigger shops. And then with supermarkets, they, especially here in the Netherlands, there's only like three. You, there's no real choice. There's nothing. And, and even if someone comes up with a choice, like an insanely, and I'm not a vegan by the way, but an insanely good vegan burger. And then that was packaged by that particular company then the supermarket will eventually go, hang on a minute, we'll either make our own burger or we'll have to ask them to package it for us so it's under the same banner. And that's exactly what's happened within music. There's no diversification. There's no different flavours anymore. There's no really local acts. And that is sad too. You see, I gave you an opportunity to be positive there and you just definitely weren't very positive. <laughs> so. Well, I don't see how globalization can be seen as positive. Well, well hang on a sec, though. My, my, the question was, though, are there, are there any notable exceptions around the world that you've noticed? Yes, France. Okay, so tell me about that. So France is, is a definite exception in the same way that we're all really sad in the 90s and the 2000s. No, we will not play your record. It is not French. No. And, and now I can actually understand what the fuck they were talking about. They have kept the culture there. There is a counterculture within France, same within Belgium, same within some parts of the Netherlands. There's a counterculture where people are holding on to what they have to actually make sure that it has a value to the community. So some places you'll play and there'll be people there that are 15, 16, shouldn't be there, but we've all been there when we were kids, uh, with some older people, 35, 45, and people in between. And there's a sense of community, right? Right. 
So those places exist and they're brilliant. I'm not going to name the names because I don't want to give any globalization bastards a chance to buy them out. Um, but but they do exist and they give massive, massive inspiration from playing them. You just go there and you play and then you give a little bit more and it just feels alive. And people are crowd surfing on adrenaline as opposed to just because it's the, the case to do. And and within the Netherlands, there are certain clubs that still exist that are called Stichtings, which is like a sort of a charitable organisation which is supported by the government. And they have an independence which is quite glorious. Um, as, and those things are really, uh, I really cherish. And if I see those things in my diary, I'm really excited about playing them, even, you know, even if it involves weird travel. It's something to, to behold, to actually go there and actually go yeah, fuck, this is just amazing. You come out and you think, I feel charged. This is what I am supposed to be doing. So Positivity, yeah, it exists. <laughs> Wasn't that hard? Woo! <laughs> so let me ask you something which may take us back into negative territory. But <laughs> Oh, Jesus. Because um, what you've just described there, right, is basically people trying to protect something, right? So it's, yeah, it's a counterculture, but it's... it's um, it's trying to hold on to something in the face of these new kind of forces and they might be seen to be negative forces. Right. But when, when does like, when does that stuff become conservative, small C conservative, if you see what I mean? Like when I, my, one of the things that I've noticed, like traveling around the world, doing similar, similar stuff to what you've done is that like, I find that the, the, the more interesting places culturally are the places which might be seen to be, conservative small c conservative and, and they've kind of like they've made a real effort to hold on to the stuff that makes their area distinctive yeah exactly that's 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 how that i perceived the french radio situation with no plays of of non-french artists i i, I perceive that as very conservative and actually negative and it's maybe still not the best thing but if you actually look at that as an indicator of the way that society itself beholds its own culture and wants to protect that culture from the globalization. So you go to France, you're very much in France. You know you're in France. You know you're not somewhere else. I just went to Rome Airport uh, very, very recently. They've uh, redid it since I was last there. And they used to have all these admittedly expensive but really nice little restaurants with Italian food and Italian people. Now, as far as I can see, there's just a fucking KFC. That's globalization. Yeah, absolutely. And like globalization is kind of cultural homogeneity, isn't it? Basically. And exactly. Yeah. And, and, and therefore what does that position us for as a society? Basically one, uh, two viewpoints, left or right, uh, black or white. How would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study? People that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Okay, well, so a couple of things then. Like what you just described there with with France and French radio and you know what we've how we've just talked about like the protection of culture and how that can sometimes be good like how does brexit fit into that <laughs> oh christ the most negative <laughs> can we talk about music production afterwards so i can get really excited about compressors or something um uh brexit well i, I foresaw brexit no, no, but no but how's that how's that let me just put it in a in a slightly different way i just like i, I mean in terms of the way i mean i'm using brexit as, as an example and it is a it is a particularly unsavory example absolutely but like i like what? What? At what point does does that kind of like legitimate protection of valuable culture become something which is a little bit toxic? I, I don't see Brexit as a protection of culture. Okay, I never did. I mean, I think some people that voted for it thought it like thought about it like that. Yeah, I'm sure some people that voted for it didn't understand anything about international finance as well. Um, but no, it's I don't see it as a protection of culture. Uh, at all. Um, no one was attack, uh, attacking the Welsh rabbit. No one was attacking the Yorkshire pudding. Um, I, I've had sort of arguments with uh, sort of friends about this where they're going, yeah, well, I couldn't buy carrots that were a certain colour or a certain shape because of the Europeans. And I'm going, that that is just utter fucking shite. I just can walk up the road and get a red carrot that looks really wonky and I'm in Europe. So what are you talking about? So... Yeah, I don't believe that, you know, musically, how can, I mean, it's sort of evening out a little bit, but how can Brexit protect the the musical value system of English musicians? It doesn't. It actually inhibits them from travelling. We have to realise how privileged we are that the majority of people within Europe now speak English, Right. They speak English. They even speak English. You know, they'll get uh, a foreign leader on, 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 on TV, maybe the Finnish leader or maybe the Iceland, and they speak English. That, that's a privilege, right? We're lucky to be able to go around. And then we withdraw ourselves for what? To save what? To protect what? They're not protecting anything of cultural value at all. Culture is important to be able to go across borders as a representative of that culture. And if that's being inhibited or made difficult because of carnets for, for, for equipment, uh, I think they've sorted out the whole th- uh, logistic thing between uh, road travelling, um, like if you're on a tour bus or something, that you can actually go on tour now on the tour bus uh, with a UK licence plate. But generally, no, there, Brexit, was no, Brexit has done nothing to protect any kind of culture. And Paul, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. 
Name me some British culture, please. I mean, just just to be clear, I wasn't suggesting that Brexit had uh, protected British culture. <laughs> no, no, I know, I know, I know, and I, I know this. I mean, like most people that travel internationally, work internationally, invoice internationally, didn't vote for Brexit. I know of one person that did, and then all of a sudden their records they couldn't sell them abroad, and I thought that was quite funny. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, all of a sudden their record, which would have been flowing backwards and forwards, has now gone up by another twenty five euros, and they're going fucking bastards. How can they do this? Well, it happens. Both both ways you have to that's what happens when you exit a free market and I, I know absolutely that you you're not a brexit um spokesperson but i'm asking you just as a devil's advocate name me some british culture that you might have thought has actually benefited from this situation i'll wait from <laughs> from brexit yeah well i mean i i think well i, th- I think the thing about brexit is that not, none of the stuff that advocates of brexit said was going to happen has happened right i mean it's probably fair to say that a lot of the 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 negative stuff that was kind of warned about and not much of that has happened either but i mean i i completely agree that it was much of it was pretty far-fetched certainly the kind of daily mail drip drip of you know um scare stories about eu regulations affecting people's daily lives which goes back to the 1970s by the way like it's it's totally ridiculous absolutely ridiculous and you know i think there were there were reasonable uh, arguments in favour of Brexit, absolutely. They were all left-wing ones. Like the, the EU is like the, the foremost exponent of neoliberalism in the world today. I completely stand by that. But like the, the, the reasons that people tended to vote were, you know, those weren't valid. You know, it was, it was bullshit. And I can't, I, I can't even get my crumpets over here anymore, Paul. It's <laughs> a really sad situation. Warburton's crumpets, I used to be able to get them and then, you know, have a little treat every now and then with a crumpet and a bit of uh, Marks and Spencer's uh, jam. Can't get that over here at all. It's impossible um, because the, the cost of getting that over here has is, is just increased massively. So let me ask you a question. Is it about music, Paul? Is DJing an art form? Used to be. Oh no, 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 you're supposed to be positive. Um, uh, DJing an art form, um, if done properly uh, with passion, uh, it, absolutely. It, it is, um, it's a skill set, it's the ability to make different things communicate that might not have been thought of to communicate together. Uh, it's the ability to um, uh, control a room at a whim and get everyone syncopated without them realising um, and sonically challenging people in places that they thought they wouldn't go and and then taking them there. And I, I kind of sort of have fun with that sometimes, like in Helsinki, I was mixing uh, Makaton with Sisters of Mercy and everyone was into it. And I don't think that's the, a thing that a lot of people will think of with DJing. And there are some amazing um, uh, uh, tasteful DJs out there that maybe don't even, like I said earlier, don't even have the technical skills, but with the sync button, all of a sudden the world is their oyster and musically they can challenge a crowd. Um, things have changed and things have to change. Uh, you can't keep on the same thing because that's not progress. Um, and, you know, right now it's the CDJ 3000's turn and there's some great stuff on it that you can do as an artist and there's some people that really work these things and get a lot out of it and give it to the crowd so yeah of course it can be yeah and i think uh, but you know i don't feel comfortable generalizing that all DJs uh, are, are are using an art form but there are definitely um some incredible DJs out there yeah so what first got you into it DJing i mean 
hip hip hop hip hop uh hip hop immediately broke me into DJing because I well my father actually uh and actually my mother uh, my mother had at that time an incredible taste in music my father was a technical uh, guy and I sort of learned a little bit of how to edit tapes on the reel to reel uh, still have the smell of the chalk um, in in my nose from the from the cutting block and then marking stuff up, um, and then hip hop came along, and it exploded the fact that you could do something with someone else's music and create a whole new context for it, and therefore you know the DJs that really uh, inspired me were as I've said quite a few times like Cool DJ Herc, Red Alert, Chuck Chill Out, Marley Mar. Um, these guys, uh, Mastermind, um, they they just did stuff that was quite incredible. There was a guy that uh, sadly passed away that was in Brighton called Shem, who I actually physically saw him doing uh, two copies of Lynn Collins for the first time ever um, in, in reality and, and actually rocking it in a club that was jumping up and down but still being on the beat. Um, so th- those DJs really, really inspired me. It was just like, shit, you can just create something new from something old. And without the hip-hop DJs, I would probably not want it to be a DJ in the same desire. Um, there weren't any, like, disco DJs that sort of inspired me. There was a guy that was in Brighton, I think he passed away too, called Rory, who used to DJ at a place called Coasters. And they used to allow me to sit in the uh, DJ booth as a youngster, uh, sorry, the lighting booth as a youngster, and give me tapes at the end of the night so I could listen to everything. Um, and I learned from that too. Um, but I wasn't in, you know, techno hadn't even started then, really. House music had almost started, but not quite. It was sort of Jesse's gang and, and things like that. It wasn't really, you know, House Nation was just about to come out. Steve Silk Hurley and all the Jack Masters and stuff were just coming through. Um, but yeah, hip hop was just like mind blowing. I mean, I, I used to go to, I used to work in a shoe shop and in my lunch break, I would just uh, avoid everyone <laughs> with my personal stereo on. And a lot of them thought I had rabies or some form of weird repetitive movement because I would always be miming the scratching on my right leg with my hand. And they thought I was a bit strange. Um, so yeah, hip hop was just like mind blowing. It just opened all the doors to me that it just, it just said record decks are fucking amazing. It took me ages to know that rubber band driven record decks were not good for the, for the job, <laughs> but there was no, there was no internet in those days, none. So you just had to work it out for yourself. So how old were you at this point? Uh, Roughly. Hip hop got me when I was about maybe 13 or 14 and then started DJing when I was 14, 15. Right. So this is like mid 80s. Is that kind of where we are, roughly? No, mid 2000s, of course. <laughs> yes. Yeah, be- beginning of the 80s. Yeah. Okay. So and you were in Brighton, right? Yeah. And what was, the, what was the scene in Brighton like back then? Like, I mean, obviously, as a kid, you weren't going out to clubs and stuff, but like. Oh, I was. I really was. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was lucky because I had these, what they would call kiddie discos, yeah. So that was like on, a, I think, a Wednesday or Thursday night at a place called Coasters. And you go down there and you'd be finished at 10.30 or 11. And I didn't really have uh, parents that were actually that worried about what I was doing at night at that particular moment in my life. And I sort of took advantage of that where you could go in for really, really cheap or free if you knew people. And then if you were lucky, you might even be able to order like a snake bite and black and then sneak that around the corner. Well, hey. um, 
Well, hey, or even the Bacardi, uh, Bacardi and Coke thinking you're in the Beatles and super cool. Um, so, yeah, it was very, very early and um, it was quite special. And then there was another sort of place at uh, behind coasters, can't remember what it's called, like Top Rank Suite or something like that. And they play music and then all of a sudden, you know, records like Shannon would come on, let the music play and then you start breakdancing um, and clear the floor and stuff and you immediately in your imagination, the mind would think, I'm in the middle of a film, I have to rock this. And um, yeah, you breakdance and stuff and just learnt a lot about music. So yeah, I mean, it started very, very early for me, very, very early. And it's a great, Brian was a great place to be because... You know, it's, 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 sorry for those conservatives out there, it's very, very liberal. Um, there, there was a large gay scene. I mean, Coasters was a gay club um, and you always felt incredibly welcome there and very well looked after. And yeah, I, I saw my first PA when I was down there actually of Divine, which was really scary, um, especially when you're sort of on the floor and looking up at Divine. It's like, holy shit, this is really quite scary. But you'd be listening to Native Love and it's like, wow, this is amazing. And uh yeah, it was really, really good. And I'd be going around Brighton with my um, my boogie box, uh, which I'd be painting to try and mimic it, looking like the cover of Duck Rock from Malcolm McLaren and um, break dance for money. And the money I would make would just about pay for the batteries for the day. Uh, not very environmentally yeah, correct if you look back at it, but that's what was available. And uh, yeah, break dance on the, on the seafront. And then you go to different clubs and there was a really, really good club scene in Brighton. It was really uh, diverse, incredible. There was like Savannah, Toppers, Zap, um, the Gloucester, which was like really studenty, and it still had like a really weird Saturday Night Fever glass uh, floor with different colours. Uh, and then when I was working at the shoe shop, I managed to get a job behind the bar uh, in a club which was in near Sayers Common. Can't remember what it was called now. And we'd all ride up there in a taxi together. And I shouldn't have been working in the bar; I was too young. Um, but anyway, I was working in the bar, and uh, if I got there a little bit early. Uh, I actually could play on the decks. They allowed me to play on the decks. And so I think that sort of gave me my style of, I must play 500 records in 30 minutes. It's important, you know, uh, because they're going to get rid of me soon. And so that's that's what I was doing. And it was playing on a club sound system, which was really uh, totally different than what you'd expect. You'd actually feel the music you were playing. And then the DJ that was there, he had like a, a Roland keyboard that he actually let me borrow for a month which was incredible until I found out that all it can really do is make helicopter sounds um, and, and stuff like that and weird wind noises, like, uh, you know, you're about to break into Vangelis and uh, Chariots of Fire or something. But it was it was fun and very, very open and very encouraging in, in those days. And then Brighton changed a little bit. Um, and I, I managed to get a gig um, at a club called Shades and then that got hit by the, um, the Great Storm. So... Uh, I sort of lost the job for a little while while they repaired having a tree through the roof. Um, okay, hang on, hang on a sec, hang on a sec. So this is like, this is 87, wasn't it? The Great Storm, I think. Yeah. Okay, so we're into like, into the Acid House era then. So like, you know, you mentioned that House had, you know, House was becoming visible prior to that and obviously it was on your radar, but like, how did you, I mean, did you get into Acid House immediately? Did it hit? Oh, massively, massively. Um, like the first Acid tracks that I really were into were like Nucleus, like the B-sides of Jam On It. It was like, ah, this is amazing. This It wasn't called Acid, but it was Acid and I really loved it. 
And then um, I was, I should also say I was doing a roller disco pool um, at a place called the King Alfred. And I was actually fired from the roller disco from playing acid house music and, and hiring a thousand watt argon strobe, <laughs> blinding everyone and having a smoke machine. And then everyone took their shoes off and started dancing as opposed to roller skating. So they fired me. But I was playing acid house and I was also playing acid house at 45 minus eight for the speed skating section because I thought that was quite fun as well. Um, so yeah, Acid House was like really, really mind blowing. I mean, I remember the first Acid House music. I was going up to Bluebird Records in London, Edgware Road, uh, and getting Acid House music uh, there. Basically, my DJ wages were just paying for forty percent of what I needed for everything else. I was hardly eating at that time, but I was buying a lot of Acid House music. And uh, you know, one of the stories that I've I've said many times is that I would actually obviously record it onto tape in those days, and then play it back and do mixtapes. And one of the things I found in those days that there was a train uh, from from Victoria to to, to uh, Brighton. And in those days, they had the short rails. I don't know how old you are, Paul, but in those days, they had the short rails, which meant that you'd hear a. Right, yeah, and I remember those, yep. And at some point, it would syncopate with acid tracks. (laughs) And I was, like, completely fucking tripping out, like... It's brilliant. And so, yeah, Acid House was like... uh, Yeah, I got fired for playing it, and then I would play it in the club. And then... um, you know, I build it up to a frenzy because in those days you have to play different genres of music, which I really enjoyed doing. It wasn't like a, a problem for me. So you'd end up playing hip hop and some soul music. And then I would always finish up with house and acid house. And it got much more into the acid house. And then the whole night would become acid house. And then I was fired from there as well, because at that time, certain newspapers like the sun were like, our kids are losing their minds to acid house. And, uh, and then they said, look, you have to change your music. I went, fuck that. And so I left. And then six weeks later, they said, you need to come back because no one's coming to the club anymore. And then I came back, but it was already too late. It's uh, like the, the whole vibe had gone. Um, but Acid House was like mind blowing, really mind blowing. So one of the things I was talking to a guy called Gerald about with regards to Acid House was the extent to which it lived up to that kind of legend of it being a kind of like, you know, one love and, you know, the, the football hooligans came down off the terraces and all the rest of that stuff. I mean, I want to ask you about the development of your of your DJ career, but just a little sidebar here. Like, I mean, how do you remember that side of it? Like, was it a real kind of um, coming together as legend states? Yeah, yeah, you have, you have to remember that clubs could be tricky places uh, still, like mid-80s. A fight could break out. Um, because, you know, drinking doesn't always bring out the best of people. Drinking and perceived jealousy of someone chatting up someone else doesn't bring out the best of people. And there was also some sort of weird machismo attached to the fact of being thrown out by a bouncer. Um, so, you know, there was, I mean, I still have a, a, a dent in, in one of my 1210s from, um, uh, who's the Brighton boxer? Um, oh, Chris Eubank. Chris Eubank. So his brother, Peter started some fight or something in daytime and my deck fell off my deck fell off 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 the off the shackled table and I still have the dent in there it still works by the way um so I've got like a Peter Eubank dent in in my in my technics so there were there were quite dodgy places um and I don't take drugs you know I've taken ecstasy once in my fucking life I hated it I thought it was bullshit it's not my thing um but what I did appreciate was it took out this horrible machismo that was always possible at the end of a night 
that it could just break out if someone was unlucky and they didn't get, you know, with, with, with a partner for the night or something, or they thought someone was playing a game, it could end up horrible. So actually it made clubbing a much more unified uh, approach where you felt that the crowd were actually all together at the same time, which is ironic because I don't do drugs, but at the same time, I really appreciated that a lot of the other people were. And it did something special. Um, and there was this whole like spiritual uh, movement uh, that you'd feel in, in the club. You'd smell. It was just there. And if you timed it right and you played Promised Land at the right moment or Sterling Void at the right moment, it's, it was almost a spirituality. You can, you can understand, sadly, uh, the title, God is a DJ. Um, I'm an atheist, but you can understand the, the title of something like that. Because if you timed everything correctly, everyone would come together in some sort of weird spiritual moment that was actually quite beautiful. Mm. I mean, I've experienced those moments and it, and it is, absolutely, it is spiritual. Yeah. But when was, um, so when did you take ecstasy? Uh, I took it sadly after my father died and my road tour manager committed suicide within a week of each other. Oof. And it was like about two months, three months later and I was a bit lost. Well, I was very lost actually. And I was uh, with someone and then I took it um, and I didn't like it actually. It made, I, I, you know, it just, it just wasn't my thing uh, at all. And the next day I was solo and I was going to play at the Fuse Club and luckily I came out of the lowness like an hour and a half before I was about to DJ because I felt fucking low, incredibly low. And you can understand why people just kept taking it if they if they had that sort of re- response because they didn't want to face the lowness. Um, but I, yeah, I, d- I took it once and uh, I thought, okay, well, I've done that. And sometimes, you know, I've thought, well, you know, the crowd are on drugs. I should actually understand what it's about, but I never did. And then I did it and I thought, okay, well, I get it, but it's not me. Yeah. I mean, fair enough. It's not for everyone, right? It's some um, nope. subjective thing. So, um, okay. So let's, yeah, let's just return to your development of your DJing career. Like at what point did you, did you feel like you were a DJ? <laughs> From when I was born. Um, <laughs> it was what I was supposed to be on this planet for, Paul. I was supposed to be on this planet to, to DJ tyrannically with the music that I like and convert people to the good music. Um, I think, I mean, I was doing birthday parties for friends and even did a wedding when I was like 15 uh, with a four track and and a belt driven turntable. Um, I felt that I was a DJ from very, very young. It's something that I really, really wanted to do. And actually, if I listen to some of my early mixes, which I think even a friend still has a tape of, it's really embarrassing, obviously, because I was pretty shit. Um, but to my defense, I didn't realize that you had to have not belt driven turntables. Um, and also have slip mats as well. That also helps. And very speed too. That also helps too. Um, but yeah, I mean, from, from very early on, and I'll be listening to radio DJs as well. When, when I was eight or nine, Paul, so I, I would actually be making my own pretend radio shows with uh, a little light going through the door that uh, would come on when people were not allowed to knock on the door because my microphone was open, stuff like that. By the sound of things, well, I mean, my, my question is going to be, like, when did you get into music? But like, I mean, just in terms of like the, two, like the two things together are often in the career of a, you know, kind of what we do, like DJing and producing kind of goes hand in hand and one supports the other. But often people feel that in their own personal experience comes before the other. So, so am I right in saying that DJing was the kind of first love there for you? Music was the first love. Um, you know, I would be dreaming of certain records when I was at school lunch uh, to go and buy with my pocket money. 
uh, and hope that it was in the sale in the sale bin and Woolies for like forty nine pence or something, or even thirty five if you're lucky. And certain songs were just. I just couldn't get them out, you know, total earworms. So I'd be hearing like XTC making plans for Nigel and I'd like, I must have this song. I don't know why it, it did something to me. And again, the lyrics were political, but I didn't realise at the time. Um, but music really busted through to me from a very, very young age. And then with the personal story, my father gave me his old personal story. And that was pretty cool because my mother and my father would just argue the whole time, like completely. And I'd be in the back of the car. And I even remember holding on to my auntie's hand, like feeling sorry for her that she had to listen to this. Um, and I would just listen to music to drown out this stuff. Um, and music was exciting. Uh, it was, you could go from like an album, Duran Duran, and just be mesmerized by the bass playing. And then you can go to, I don't know, uh, Scar by The Selector or... There was so much music around. And of course, you'd record the top 40, the, the tracks that you wanted to record because you couldn't afford to buy them. And just immerse yourself constantly in music all the time. And so music came first, absolutely. And then DJing came second. And at what point did you figure that you wanted to make records? When the Acid House explosion became commercial um, and then clubbing really started to suffer because people were fed up quite rightly by the you have to finish at one or two o'clock at night um, and the music can only be this loud. And they were like, no, we want to be in, in somewhere where we can dance the whole night and have really loud music. So, but it got commercial for me when all of a sudden the fairground ride start, started getting involved. And yeah, so I then sort of backed out because I felt I wasn't the right person for that, that particular. So, so when was, sorry, when, sorry, when, when was that? When would you put that? I think I think that the end or middle of eighty seven. Okay, oh, so still early on then. Yeah, yeah, and I, I knew that I wouldn't fit into that. It's not something I wanted to do. And some of the music tapes that I heard, I really didn't relate to at all. I didn't really like any of that that stuff, and I felt that it became cheesy. Actually, uh, I moved away from the music. Um, so I thought, okay, I have to do something still with music. So I then started to produce music. Okay, so it's slightly alienated by the commercial forces, like a kind of a stab, you know, recurring theme going on there. Um, exactly, yeah. But it, so, I mean, th- did you then identify with a? Was there a certain specific uh, counter trend that you identified with and wanted to be involved with as a pro- as a producer, or was it just a? Um, let, let me. No, I just want. To, I was still trying to find out who I was. I mean, I, I, I teach in, and I've taught actually in various different schools, but at the moment I teach in the Harlem Conservatorium. And I sometimes sort of throw up the equipment that I was using. Um, and, you know, one of the questions that a lot of students will have is like, uh, well, I want to sound like this and I want to sound like this and I want to sound like this. And that's the stage that I was at at that particular moment where I was thinking, oh, I'd like to sound like this, I'd like to sound like that. And that particular moment, I was more inspired by what was going on through Belgium, actually, um, which is ironic because my first two releases then ended up getting licensed by RNS and then I went over to record an EP for them as well. Um, but I was sort of trying to emulate a Belgium sound. I didn't find my own sound yet and that's also why I went without realising it was just lucky, without realising I was going under various different pseudonyms as opposed to using my name because I didn't really know who I was, but that was subliminal. And when I found out who I was, then that was okay. So I was going under different names like Hardcore, Directional Force, whatever, um, and trying to emulate a sound that I wasn't aware of. And it was a good learning lesson uh, in how to use equipment as well. 
because there was no internet at the time, don't forget. And so the only information you would get would be from magazines like Sound on Sound, but the Sound on Sound magazines were still talking about different types of music and not really talking about techno, electro or, or house and so they'd be like, yes, the Alessis Quadroverb is used for this and this particular rock reverb, and this is brilliant. And then you'd be going, okay, and it's like £299, better be careful about this. And then you'd use that and you find, oh, fuck, it's great for techno, brilliant. So you have to learn along the way without any sort of other thing. And then, of course, you talk to other producers, and at that time I was, I think, working for sandwiches uh, for Luke Slater in um, Jelly Jam Records. And so I used to get paid enough money for uh, a decent salmon sandwich and uh, and a drink and maybe one or two records at the end of the day because it was so formative years. You didn't, you know, there was nothing really like earnable in those days. And then I was also a journalist, um, which I forgot about. I just remembered I was actually writing articles for Generator magazine. So I was reviewing people, uh, interviewing people like Felix de Houskat, uh Thomas Barnett, all those people I was trying to get there. And I did the first review of uh, Aphex Twin because uh, I got sent it really, really early and I just fell in love with Analog Bubble Bath One. And I'd be doing reviews for them. I'd do reviews for ID magazine, do some pieces for Mixmag. So yeah, I was trying, trying to keep my fingers busy in all pies. And I, the reason why I was doing that also was that if I actually could write reviews, then that meant that I would get the records in front of everyone else. I think basically, like just wanting to be involved with the scene in any kind of a way is just a, it's just a common kind of... Yeah. It's a common experience, I think, for, for most people who have actually managed to establish themselves. Like, you just want to be in it, right? It's just like a thing that you want to be involved with. And you just, yeah. And you just immerse yourself the best way you can right and I, I certainly did a similar sort of thing at the start of what I was doing I you know wrote articles as well and like just just did anything but let me ask you like what was it like working with RNS obviously they've been in the news recently uh, so how is working with Renat see in those days there were also reports about everyone from every different label that there was this going on that was going on um, um, but my time at RNS was actually very honourable um they, I was sad that they didn't want to work with me after one of the uh, my my third track, I think, with them, uh, the first track I recorded, um, and after the two licenses. But honestly, if I look back at it, I would actually say, yeah, they were right because what I was producing wasn't really up to that standard, and that's fair enough. But at the time, it was you couldn't admit that because it sort of hurt at the time, um, and you weren't always honest with yourself. But you know, like a year or two later, I'd be going, yeah, fair enough it wasn't up to the standard. So I actually had no issue with um, RNS at all at my time with them. I do chuckle with Renat when I saw him like about three, four years ago saying, well, you also refused Red 2. So, you know, <laughs> we weren't always completely right. Um, but yeah, uh, my time, I, ha- I have no complaints of any anything that I was there. And I haven't seen Renat, I think, for three years. Um, and he was trying to taught me into some sort of project but I it didn't happen so yeah okay but I'm aware of I'm aware of the court case and I'm also aware of the fact that uh whilst it's been dismissed it's been dismissed on a technicality so okay well let's let's not talk about that to uh avoid any potential litigation so um uh how did you <laughs> so what was the okay so obviously red was the the kind of well the red series was the breakthrough right and red two was the the, the really big kind of impact but like so what was the um how did you get there basically it was like was being rejected by rns like a key 
input to that, would you say? I mean, I was, I was rejected by quite a few people, actually. Mm. Um, and rejection was tough in those days. It wasn't like no email or an email. It was you'd have to wait maybe six to eight weeks before you'd actually do the first tentative inquiries. Like, well, did you get it? And do you like it? And can I speak to the person on the phone, please? Oh, they're busy. Okay, I'll phone. And maybe another two or three weeks would pass and then they would actually say yes or no. It was really slow. Um, so, you know, it's... It's an interesting period to look back. And again, I always teach my students and other people that sometimes I work with that are younger than me. And I say, look, you have to be able to deal with rejection. And rejection can be painful, but it's also a lesson. It's how you deal with it. You have to create your own luck. If you don't keep pushing because of fear of rejection, then you're not creating your own luck to open something else up. So you have to completely keep going. So... Yeah, rejection was tough. Um, the, the whole thing with Bush started by Felix the Housecat, actually. Um, I can't remember what happened, um, but uh, the, he did a track. Yeah, Tony, Tony, who used to work at Jelly Jam, I think, had a white label of this Felix the Housecat track, and I really, really liked it. And I think I either spoke to Bush or Felix saying, I'd like to remix it, which is quite ballsy, really, because, you know, who knows who the fuck I am, whatever. Um, and it got agreed and I did a remix and then that sort of opened up. So I called it, uh, um, um, the dark, I think I can't remember now. It was originally the light and in the, oh yeah, in the dark we live. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I know the track. Yeah. Great tune. Uh, and I called it that because I basically sampled a Bam Bam, um, vocal, uh, and I thought, okay, this is cool. I've, I just flipped it. It's completely dark. And then I did, like, in the old days, you'd always refer, like, yes, I know what I'm talking about. This is the 312 mix and the 313 mix. And people go, huh? And it's like, yeah, it's the Chicago mix. That's the phone number for Chicago. Um, and, like, I'm so worldly with my phone number knowledge. I even did a track called 00273 for stress, which is, like, the phone number for my, my for, for, for Brighton. So, yeah, I was a bit number number specific in those days, shall we say. So I did the remix and then that went well. And then I, they wanted me to do like a 12 inch. And I said, listen, you know, I'm a little bit bored of doing one or two 12 inches for someone. I'd like to do a series of three. And in my mind, that was actually getting a commitment that at least I can definitely have three records out. And that it would say red one of three, red two of three. So that enabled definitely for a third one to come out, even if the first two didn't do so well. That was my logic behind it. Uh, and that's, that's what happened. So... Two, two was the big one, right? But the first one was like a, it did make a big impact too, right? Um, yeah, I think so. I think a lot of people liked it, and yeah, but two, no, three was the, the the big one because that actually went into the physical charts. Uh, in the top. well, three wasn't three. Didn't didn't that get get licensed as well? To I, I remember buying. I, remember, I tell you what, I remember buying Red Three in like HMV or somewhere, and I think yeah, it came out on deconstruction because what happened was. Um, the series was doing really, really well. And I got approached by James Barton, uh, who was then the A&R of Deconstruction. He said, oh, I want you to want to sign you. And I said, well, I can't. I've got this obligation. He said, well, we can sort that out. And I was like, okay. And then I realised that I needed to be on, on, on a bigger label um, with an infrastructure there. And I managed to sign Bush through to Deconstruction on that because I wanted to be on the bigger label and and that's how that happened and then I was signed to uh to deconstruction and then that's also when the journalist started hounding me again 
And there was a guy, if you look on my album on uh, Archive One, I crossed out one guy with a black line through it, and that was a guy called Ben Wilmot. Because I was really touchy, but because at those days, like, if you sign to a major label, then you're not underground anymore. And I'm thinking, well, that's bullshit. It's the music. Either the music is underground or it's not. And it doesn't matter where it comes out from. And I really felt strongly about that. And I'd also turned down doing a Kylie Minogue remix at that particular time. An absolutely magnum moment for me, for no doubt. Um, and I decided, all right, I'm not going to do that. And, and then I got really pissed. It's like, Dave Clark hits label pay dirt and has gone commercial. And I was like, shit, fuck, you can't do anything in this country at all still. Um, but I was really, 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 really happy with my time with Deconstruction. I thought James Barton was an incredible person to work with, completely honest, straightforward, no bullshit. And I remember to this day when he told me he was leaving and then I was like, oh shit. And I then realised I should have had maybe a key man clause. Um, And then, yeah, because I, I just really enjoyed working with him. And it was the day after the Omar bombing that he phoned me. I think I was in Dublin. And I just remember coming down the lift and thinking, shit, this is just gone it's gone wrong for me now. And yeah, that's, the, you know, but I, I, I loved working with James, really did. So what were you locked in for at that point? Ooh, I think maybe five albums. Oof, really? Yeah, Ouch. yeah. And in those days, we have to be honest as artists, as, as dance music artists, like album, it's more like a collection of fucking singles if you're lucky, filled out with other stuff. Mm. <laughs> we weren't actually like thinking, oh, let's do an album. It's like, no, 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 four, 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 four. And I sort of tried to make it an album anyway, and I think I succeeded. Um, but yeah, there, there were difficulties, and uh, I managed to extricate myself from that particular deal. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like being signed to, well, signing to majors and maintaining a bit of underground. Um, I was going to say credibility, but that's such a bullshit word. Like just just being um, of the underground, I suppose, which is like you say, is is a musical thing. Yeah, more than anything, I, I would I would argue. I mean, there are some people who say like it's more of a kind of holistic thing, and I'm not. Sure, I don't know. I kind of see where people are coming from when they say that, but I think if you're talking about music, it's really about the like you know what it is that's on the records. I, I, I yeah, exactly. Exactly, and and actually, if you if you look at the way that music is, is distributed now, there is no um, label really mentioned anywhere, really, unless you actually buy it physically or you actually have a thing about the label. You won't know what label that record is released on. Really, it doesn't pop up on Spotify. It doesn't really pop up on. Yeah, of course, it pops up on Beatport, but it doesn't really pop up on on Apple Music. It's not like oh, this is on this label. Let's follow you. you want to see more on this label? So. It is the music that attracts people and not the label. Yeah. It's pretty clear that the kind of, well, the input that a label has in terms of... Had. Well, well yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm saying. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's changed so much, but like, I mean, I think that like developmentally, like being on the, being on the right label can still be really useful, particularly if you're a new artist, right? But it's a, it's very much a, a roll of the dice, particularly if you're signing to to a major. But but actually, to be honest, even even if you're signing to a to a bigger independent, I mean, I know people who've signed to, you know, the, the kind of well labels like, shall we say, like Ninja, for example. I think they do an amazing job. I hear their stuff all the time. It's diverse. Yeah, to- totally, totally, um, that's absolutely true. But I think if you are signing to them, it's it's no guarantee that you'll be at the top of their priority list and really that's the point about signing to majors it's like if you're not 
if you're not the one who is going to be commanding the the time of the staff and the enthusiasm of the staff, which is by no means a guarantee, regardless of what it is. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it, it is a roll of the dice when he signs at anyone, when you do, when you do any kind of deal. And you feel that roll of the dice when personnel changes as well. Well, that's the thing, yeah, because you've got to have the person who's going to fight your corner within the institution, right? That's It's so, so important. Yeah, because if you have like a real sort of symbiotic relationship with, with the actual A&R person and they understand musically where you are, where you want to be and actually can even help you go to that place musically that you might not have thought of and then you lose that, then you are just a product. And if the product is not selling as much as the other products, then you're not going to be that important to them at all. And that's, that's, that's also the way it works. So it's actually a, sort of a, a tougher situation. So have you ever, I mean, I'm, I'm conscious of not wanting to get negative again, but have you ever had any notably uh, problematic experiences with labels? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think it's been well documented. I don't think I really need to go there, but yeah, absolutely. It's, um, and I, again, I, I also teach students is like, when you get knocked down, it's how you get up that defines the rest of your career and the rest of your life. You will get knocked down. Some people don't, and they're very, very lucky. Um, but you will get knocked down. Something will happen to you, whether you feel betrayed or you're not accounted to, um, or you're not, you know, lots of things can happen, but it's how you deal with that. Uh, and actually, I sort of felt a little bit inspired by, I think it was uh, about six years ago when there was a documentary, I think, on on, on Dre after he fell out with Suge, is it Suge Hill or whatever the, the guy's name? Oh, Suge, Suge Knight. Suge Knight, yeah. Um, and he basically went, yeah, you can have my old work. Fuck you. My best work's ahead of me. Bold, strong. Yeah, I mean, wow. Especially when he was considering like that album had sold how many million copies that he just gave away. Exactly. And you're thinking, and you're thinking, wow, that is not only like an insane amount of belief in, in your own possibilities but an incredible way of going further forward and yeah obviously it worked for that particular producer but it doesn't that's the stories you hear about you don't hear about the stories that go yeah well fuck you my best work's ahead of me and then you never <laughs> from that person again <laughs> that's not going to be a documentary of a, of a feel-good thing that apple music are going to do uh, at all so um yeah i mean i think having having a bit of pressure upon yourself can be really useful. I think particularly when you've had a degree of success and it's quite easy to, you know, rest on your laurels. Yeah. Or either rest on your laurels or just try and, you know, just to do the same thing again, you know, in a in a kind of lazy way or, or, or just a kind of defensive way, you know, because I think when you have success, it's like there is a tendency just is to be, well, I've got to, I've got to do this again. It's got to, you know, I've got to, you know, roll this out. And like having a degree of, well, being able to push yourself creatively, I think having that sort of pressure on yourself can be really useful. Yeah. I think it's, it's important to be your own strongest critic, actually. Yeah. So the last thing I want to talk about is albums. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've talked a bit about your first album already and also the <laughs> the tendency sometimes of dance music albums to be um as as you said you know <laughs> a, cu- a some a couple of big 12s and some filler yeah and actually i think like i've i've said i've said before in this podcast that i, I find it's just it can be some it can be a bit of an awkward fit actually just the format with with dance music and with with electronic music generally so i mean you've released three albums but there was like a I don't know it was like a 14 year gap right between the 
the second and the third one. So yeah, so yeah, I went I went a little bit on strike, um, right. and then I was I was doing some remixes because I wanted to get out the record deal, because I felt for whatever reasons it was unfair and untenable, and I, I got out the record deal and it was agreed all in court and everything. And I had to do a remix uh, to, to finalise that. And then in my remix, I actually, there's a vocal in there that goes, this is the record that writes all my wrongs. Um, that was sort of the key to get me get me out, I suppose. Um, and yeah, uh, but I was doing remixes and really enjoying that. And I was using all the money that I was getting for the remixes to fund the studio with the, with the premise of hopefully making another album at some point. And yeah, that happened. And I was looking at various um, um, deals, which I was really lucky because my manager helped me get out of the time of that that record uh, contract and had some incredible legal advice around there. And then I felt ready to, to go and make a, an album. Of course, life changes, as, as always it does. It's like, yes, this is my plan. And then he goes, no, it's not. Something else is going to pop along. Um, so, yeah, I signed to Skint Records uh, and uh, worked with Damien and JC and the whole team there. And I really, really enjoyed it. It was actually, I could have signed to two or three other labels. And in fact, some of the labels were offering me some more money. But I felt that with Skint... I don't know, I suppose I felt I was coming home, uh, literally, and that also these people will understand. I mean, like, you know, Damien would work in the record shop in Rounder Records in Brighton, and he he knew how moody I was, so he, he knew what he was going to be dealing with. Uh, I was like, this isn't house music, I only want house. And... Um, yeah, and JC was always the um, the smiley, fun guy, uh, always super positive and really sweet and really honest. Uh, his his sister, I think, is Susanna Reed, who is actually on the TV uh, on Good Morning. I don't get ITV over here, um, but yeah. So he was like really fucking cool to work with, and the whole team uh, were really really cool to work with. Uh, I, I mean, I even forgot I, I actually was learning to fly at the time. And uh, I took one of them with me uh, on tour and I was doing, I think, Creamfields and then another gig in Oxford then somewhere else. And I completely forgot that I actually flew myself uh, with, a, with a very capable co-pilot who was still technically teaching me and landed in these different airports. And I, I completely forgot about that. And, and he basically said, I think it's Andy, Andy Mack. He basically said, yes, and Dave even flew us to the gigs. I'm like, oh shit, yeah, I did. So these, th- these people are really, really cool to be around and really nice and really honest and really fun. Um, but then at that particular moment of time, um, I was going through a divorce and every time I was doing something with the track or, or with an album, or there'd always be like a legal letter or if I was actually cutting the album, I'd get another legal letter sent to me uh, at Metropolis where I was cutting the album. I was like, come on, it can, you know, this can wait one day, surely. Uh, and I was getting faxes when I was on a photo shoot and all this other stuff, which was like really testing and really difficult. And uh, no support at all. Um, and I was starting to get slow on the album. So Damien said to me, listen, you need to send me WIPs, works in progress. And I was like, holy shit, okay, I'm now being monitored. But I completely understand, you know, and I needed that to happen. And actually, it really helped. So I was doing like works in progress and then doing stuff. And then uh, She's in Parties uh, with Chicks and Speed was going to originally be a track for me and Tiga. 
and I did it on Tiga's birthday, which is, I think, a day after mine. So it was supposed to be for Tiga, and then it didn't work out. Um, and then I rejigged it a bit, and then I got to work with Chicks on Speed, and they just really turned it around and did a really amazing job on, 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 on lyrics and vocals and stuff. And then uh, we did another track called... Uh, I can't remember... Uh, it's a long time ago, but anyway, I did another track with them. I, that, the whole thing you were talking about earlier on, which was like just repeating yourself. Well, I did a pastiche and made everyone aware that I did a pastiche of me repeating myself. And that was with uh, Way of Life. That was almost like red three and a half. Um, <laughs> uh, but I did it on purpose because it was kind of fun to revisit that. And uh, yeah, and I had a complete spinal tap moment. I was in Iceland and I was like, oh, I wonder if they got my album. Have you got my album? Yes, it's right in front of you. And I'm like, oh, shit, yes, it's the black album with the black lettering. Yes, I didn't see that. But <laughs> it's like, cool. Um, but actually, I was really happy with, with the way Skint did it. We, we signed at the Greyhound course in um, Brighton. And then we had like a release party and stuff on, on, on Palace Pier, which is quite funny because I used to do Palace Pier radio in the school holidays. Um, and that was really, I really enjoyed my time with Skint. And then the whole recording industry completely changed. And I was almost at the point of staying in the UK, uh, looking at taking over Ridge Farm, which was a recording studio like 10 miles from my house, um, which recorded like Queen, Pearl Jam, lots of other things. And it was an amazing recording studio. And I was thinking, okay, my dream is to travel less, be in the recording studio input a little bar across the mixing desk so I can actually use it to actually hold and wheel myself along the mixing desk because I'm going to be so fat on sandwiches. That was my plan. Just relaxation and being a, a music producer. And I was really thinking deeply about this. And in the end, I just thought, nah, the recording industry has completely changed. Um, it's best to take a back seat on that. And I was going through the divorce, so yeah, I had to change a lot of things in my life. And uh, so I didn't do that. And then the person that took over Ridge Farm was, uh, I think, Ben from Junior Reactor. And I think he did Matrix 2 and Matrix 3 music at that studio. So it was perfect. It worked out really, really well for everyone. Um, and then again, I took some time out and um, Skint didn't want to uh, renew the... Um, uh, the album options on the terms they'd agreed because obviously everything had changed, you know, like when I signed the deal and then that time Napster had changed into Apple Music and things had changed digitally in, in such a way where selling physical product where you could easily sell like with, with word service, I'd easily sell between 120 and 160,000 copies uh, of, of a compilation album that, that the whole thing had disappeared and gone in, in such a way. So they had to reevaluate the deal and they said, listen, on the terms, we can't do it. And I thought, okay, it makes sense. And it sort of freed me up. It enabled me to think about what I can do with my life and then again I took a big break and then I um, basically started to rebuild a studio um, completely different to what I'd had before and I wanted to go sort of more in the box because in those days I was using a lot of samplers like on Sonic and Emu and doing all my editing within the sampler and things had to change a little bit and even Chicks on Speed saying, wow, you're doing all that editing in the sample. I said, yeah, this is what I know. But things had to change. So I spent ages thinking about how to do this, took some time out. And I think the last remix that I did at that time, but the first remix that I ever sent over the internet uh, on a really shitty country broadband uh, was Terence Fixman and Doug McCarthy. And I sent that. It took the whole night to send the file, one file. 
the whole night. And that was the last remix that I think I did for quite some time. And then came out to the Netherlands, thought, okay, need to socialise and see people and do things which I'd never really done before and really enjoyed that time. Uh, and also see what was happening with the music industry because I needed to figure out what my place was going to be in, in, the, in the change. And then I started to learn different things and I, I got someone to sort of teach me, which I've never had before, uh, Ableton. And I thought, okay, um, I'm going to learn Ableton, see how that goes. And I enjoyed it, but I didn't feel like I was ever progressing. I felt like it was more of a performance tool and less of a writing tool. So that didn't work. And then I was DJing at Winkel van Sinkel. I, I don't joke. And that was in Utrecht. And I've been playing, I've been on national radio for a while uh, in the Netherlands. And I've been playing uh, uh, loads of tracks by this guy called Mr. Jones, uh, Jonas. And I really liked it. And he came backstage. And then we sort of struck a sort of friendship. And it's the first time I've ever really worked with anyone in the studio consistently, as opposed to just like on a project. And we worked together on loads of different remixes as Unsubscribe. And we went to Logic and he got me into Logic and this was Logic 9. And we got into Logic and I realised it was very similar uh, on the GUI as Cubase was. So I just really, really enjoyed it. And it was like a real full circle because I had uh, started off with C-Lab Notator, which was eMagic, which was the very, very first version of Logic. So I'd gone from Logic to Cubase and then Cubase back to Logic, which I'm still on. And doing loads of remixes, really enjoying being in the studio with someone for the first time ever. And we did had fun. And then a few years later, I thought, okay, let's do the album then. And got back in contact with Skint and signed with Skint. And to their credit, they gave me complete and absolute artistic freedom. Let me let me let me let me stop you there for a sec. Okay. Cause um because we talked about uh like the Devil's Advocate album, which was, as you said, released around the time that the whole paradigm changed. Yeah. In, in in recorded music anyway. And then and then there was this long period, as you've described, before you even considered making another one. But I mean, that that par- that shifting paradigm had, had developed. Um and uh, you know, Napster had gone to uh, iTunes had gone to Spotify. Yeah. And and people's listening habits had changed over that period as well, partly in reaction to those changes in distribution model. So I said, so my question really is like, why did you want to make an album? Like, was it, was it because just because that's what you do and that's what, you know, people from who are you, who are used to that pre 2000 model of, of music. That's how we, how we think about it. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I think actually people do think about it also um, post then as well. That's a, a slight sidebar, but like, how do you think about that album format like in the context of today's music is really what I'm asking you. And it's a question that I've asked lots of people on the, on the podcast. Like, wh- wh- is it an obvious thing to do? And is it a relevant thing to do? And does it make any sense? And in, in just in, pu- in a purely sort of like cold-hearted, you know, cold-eyed view of it. So I really actually wanted to finally make an album. So as I pointed uh, that my first album was really a collection of tracks. And it wasn't a cohesive. It does. I don't want to poison anyone's view on it if they liked it or hated it, whatever. But for me, it wasn't a cohesive album. It was an album of tracks with some filler tracks, which sort of got away with in my mind. Right. The second album was done under complete duress and stress, 
And I felt sorry for Skint for that because they didn't sign up to that. But that's the situation that was personally going on in my life. It was, you know, I had had to book my own studio time in my own studio. Uh, it was really difficult and really, really hard. And always every every single action I had with that album came with a consequence. And it felt an incredibly stressed environment to to make an album. So I felt that, rightly or wrongly, that it wasn't the best album I could have done maybe at the time, rightly or wrongly, right? And it felt that I needed, I had something to say. And maybe it's very, very possible that I'm also looking for some excuses and say, you know, I was touring a lot of the time anyway. Maybe I was just looking for another excuse and that's possible too. But I felt that that album was made under complete duress. It wasn't enjoyable. Never had to do works in progress. Don't hold it against them, but I had to do it. And then... With the third album, I wanted to go back to Skint, but sadly Skint had completely changed at that moment and the people that I wanted to work with had then just left after I signed again. Um, yeah, so that's the way that goes. And they became part of the machinations of, of, of like a big corporate entity. But it wasn't bad. Uh, I wanted to make a fucking album, like an album album. And... I was really smitten on Carol King's uh, album, um, the way they put it together, the fact they spent six months segueing all, segueing all the tracks so that it made cohesive sense on an album in a linear format. And I was like, yeah, you know, that was in my mind. And then I thought, I want to make an album as if I'm writing a book, but as if I'm writing a book in analogue so that I'm writing it in the order that it appears in. That was really important to me. So every single track that is on that album was written uh, in that order. Um, apart from one track where I had some beats uh, that I used later on, but I rejigged it completely, but I did it in that order. So I made it and that was Dot 41. Um, so all the, all the tracks are in chronological order so that they flow into each other. So I understand, oh, I've done this track, this is how I feel. Because you know when you make music, especially if you're not really a musician, the music itself tells you what it needs, where it needs to go. And that's the instinct that we all trade on, that we all hope to keep alive. Let the music tell you what it wants. So that's what I wanted to do with this album. I wanted the music to tell me exactly where it wanted to go and how it wanted to be. And so, yeah, that's that's how I did it. And then I'll record, even though sometimes I have to wait. So, you know, I'd, I'd work with different people uh, like Gazelle Twin, Mark Lanigan, um, uh, Annika and they all had their own and Louisa and they all had their own itineraries of course so I'd have to be patient and go okay I'm not going to start on the next track because I want to finish this one first and that, that, that took its time and to Skint's absolute you know uh, credit they I said to them I'm not going to play you this album until I've finished it and they gave me that freedom yeah. possibly the worst <laughs> decision they've ever made in their life because they, maybe they were expecting a dance music album. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do an album. Um, that's what I want to do. And so the Desecration of Desire came about in that way. And I actually wrote my own lyrics for one of the tracks. Um, and yeah, it was really important to me. And that's something I've carried through into the next project that I'm working on now by recording it in the order that I want it to appear as if the record, and actually I have something to thank Adele for or her team, which is they took out the shuffle function uh, of an album. So you have to listen to it in, in the order that it works or unless, of course you can move it around, but you have to order it, uh, listen to it. And I wanted that order to be, because that's an 
that's an artist. An artist is saying, this is this, this is that, this is this order. You can make your own meaning about it, but this is why it has to be, you know, it has to flow in this particular direction because as an artist, that's that's the direction that I wanted it to go. Tell me about the format though, because, I mean, is it just, just because you want to have a long form thing? And, and how do you feel about, I mean, you just mentioned the shuffle thing, but obviously the way people can like listen to music now is, I mean, like you might not even be staying on an artist, you know, you'll probably be, you might be listening on a playlist or whatever. Yeah. So wh- like, tell me about the, um, just doing it as an album in of itself, you know, because I mean, you've, you made it sound very sort of determined and I I'm absolutely identify with that. I mean, to me, um, making albums is a, is a key thing of what I sort of do and aspire to do. But just in the context of that changing landscape, musical landscape of people, the way people listen to stuff, like, is it, it should, well, should it be like a, an obvious thing to do? Well, I think all artists shouldn't pander to the public, but actually pander to what they feel they should be doing themselves. And I think, I think if you're second guessing that, then you are, uh, you're not so much an artist, but you're a consumer item. And if you make that decision about yourself, that's absolutely fine. If you're masquerading as being an artist, but you're pandering to uh, everyone else, then that's you know something you have to have a little chat with yourself about. So I wanted to do it as as a statement of intent for myself uh, that I believed in the album. Um, there's a difference between an album and a track. You know, in in the Nether- in the Netherlands, they don't generally refer to lyrics as lyrics; they call it uh, text. Right? That to me is very similar to a track or a song. Yeah. A track is something that serves a purpose, but it doesn't have any emotional content generally. Right. So I didn't want to do a collection of tracks on a long player format. I wanted to do a collection of songs on an album. It might sound really precocious, but that's where it's how I grew up. I grew up listening to albums thinking, oh, fucking track three is shite. Oh, I've got to listen to it all the way through. This is shite. And then after five or six years of, of being stuck on, on, on the cassette in the same rotation, you actually get to really like it. And then you don't play the other tracks so much. Uh, the other songs so much. Jesus, catch yourself on. Uh, the other songs so much. Um, so the long player is like a really important format where it opens the artist up for the person that's listening. And... I wanted to open myself up and say, this is an album. This is what makes sense to me. Yeah, totally. And I think that at the risk of getting negative again, I think just the kind of unlimited... We've had such a good run, Paul. <laughs> We've had a good run. Stop it. <laughs> no, just, just the, the, unlimited, the unlimited choice of streaming platforms is really problematic. Like, on the one hand, it's the best thing ever, right? But it's I find it to be like quite oppressive... You know, when I'm like scrolling through, even though I've, I've you know, just taken the trouble to like, you know, hit the favorite button on all my albums and I scroll through my album collection and try and avoid doing the playlisting and everything else. Just having the choice there, it's, it's a completely different listening experience to like looking at your, you know, shelf of CDs or whatever, or box of tapes, you know, and, and I find that like, I just don't get to know the music as well. Like when I listen to a, an album that I owned on CD when I was a kid, I, I've said this before on the podcast, but I know that music inside out. I really do. Like it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Because we didn't have so much, we didn't have so much choice and we had to listen to it and we had to learn from it and we'd actually listen deeper. We'd also list, look at the album notes. Uh, but the thing for the, like, the streaming things, I find streaming really, really interesting because what I do is I use it 
almost as a listening poll that used to exist in record shops, I will be looking actively for new stuff that should appeal to me and I should learn from and be inspired from. And so I use Spotify for that. I'm constantly on Spotify like one day a week looking for new stuff. And obviously I'm not talking about techno or dance music. I'm just talking about good old rock and roll or good old song structure, good old singing music. And I'm looking for that on Spotify. And then what I do is then uh, I then actually catch it on my phone. If I like it, I go, fuck, this is really, really good. Catch it on my phone on Shazam. And then I'll buy it on iTunes. So I actually own own it. I do that because I can't be bothered to put the text in. It's actually a lot easier because iTunes, they obviously didn't understand what Google was. And actually when you search for something within iTunes, Apple Music, it's really difficult. It gets it wrong a lot of the time. So if you actually Shazam it and then you can actually buy that on, on, on Apple Music, it's, it's a lot easier. But one of the things that really, really, really excites me is that, so I've actually found this piece of music and it really blows me away. I then Shazam it and then it comes up with one or eight or 10 Shazams. And I think I've just discovered it's that whole thing of going through the records and the digging through the through 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 the crates. You find something which other people have not really found yet, and you found that. And the whole world of Shazamage, one person has Shazammed it, and that was probably me. Mm. <laughs> and I'm just really excited. So, I, I, like, yes, it's difficult now with streaming. But there are still some amazing positives about discovering new music. Whereas before you would have to go down to a record shop, you have to sit there and listen. Uh, and that didn't always work. It did work and you'd still go, and I still do this and you get recommendations uh, from someone or more. Often what happens to me is like, I'm just in there looking through albums and I hear something in the background. Oh, what's this? This is interesting. Never heard this before. And then you find out that it's a really old group from, from the eighties. Like I heard like from the sound or concert angels or something like that. And then you, you discover stuff like that. I like to discover stuff weirdly, but strongly. And that's, you know, and I definitely find that um, uh, streaming services are brilliant for that. I don't go on Beatport at all, by the way. I haven't been on Beatport, I think, for 15 years. Just going back to streaming platforms, like the, the absolute, well, the defining advantage of it is just that the music is there. And going back to stuff which has been, yeah. you know, out of print on CD for decades probably, but has, you know, it is on some labels, uh, you know, <laughs> metadata spreadsheet and you know, someone like delivers it. Like I've, again, like what you just described, Shazamming and then like you, you hear a tune, I've, I've had it this way, you hear a tune in the airport, you hit Shazam and it's like some obscure early 80s band who just never heard of and you just dug into it and it's just like, there's no way this would, you'd ever have heard of it. Yeah. You'd ever have come across this before if this tech didn't exist. And that's just joyous. That's just, that, that and, and going back to your very early question, is there an art in being a DJ? That is part of the art of being a DJ is like the excitement of still searching, looking for something that would just work its magic on you, whether it's like lyrically or sonically. Um, you know, I, f- that I found an album last year and it just fucking blew me away. I was like, whoa. And then I had to buy it on vinyl eventually. And actually on vinyl, it even made even more sense. Um, but that's the art of DJing as well, is actually constantly being active, looking for stuff. And I think that's really, really important. It's like, I, I will always listen to my downloads that I get sent and promos and stuff like that. I think it's important. That's, that's part of the art and craft. Well, um, we've had a pretty good run of positivity. So, uh, I think- yes, let's go to negativity. <laughs> Hurrah. No, 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 no. I, I think we're, 
We're nearly done here. I've just got one more question or one more, one more thing to get into, which is, you know, you mentioned the album. Oh, by the way, by the, by the way, I have to say, I've been standing for the whole time because I'm really cruel like that because actually whenever I do radio or whenever I have vocalists, no, you have to stand. It's really, really important. So I've been standing for two hours <laughs> okay. and eight minutes now, Paul. Sorry. So let this be a good question. Let's go. Well, just give me some albums that you like. Oh, shit. <laughs> Oh, Sorry. I hate those questions. It's like totally Not, and completely. Okay, let, let me let me make it a bit easier. Give me a few albums that you've recently discovered, or one or two albums that you've recently discovered, and then a couple that you've uh, you know were important to you. Not necessarily your favourite ones, but just just throw throw me a throw me some recent ones and some older ones. Right, I'm actually going to go to my prop. I'm actually going to go to my library and find out what the fuck I've been listening to. Um, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Cheat cheating is is totally acceptable. So, yeah, my barber just recommended something to me from 2019 called Kills Birds, which I thought was fucking amazing. Um, I recently rediscovered Chocolate Grinder by Movie Tone. Um, I found a new, uh, for me, new uh, artist called Blood Handsome. Um, What else? Uh, Hell by Trees, fucking mind-blowing. I mean, like, beautiful. Uh, the, none of these are techno, by the way. Sorry about that for our listeners, because, um, yeah, I, I listen to a lot of music. Uh, BDRMM, I think, are really, really good. Um, what else? They're, I'm going to see if I can find... Specific, give, me, give, me, give me some specific album titles, though, as, as well. Okay, as, I'm trying to find my album of the year, because I'm really bad with names. I hope this is not a precursor to, like, uh, <laughs> going mad as I get older. Um, like, hello, dear, who are you? I can't remember your name. Um... Let me see. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I will find it. Um, okay, we can edit this bit out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Scrolling. yeah sure. It's going to sound really succinct. Oh, here we go. It's springtime. Who's that by? That's that. That's that's the artist's name. Okay. Uh, and it's absolutely amazing. It's it's fucking mind blowing. It's yeah. It's unbelievable. Um, they're an Australian group. So apparently, a super group of like three or four Australian artists. Uh, one of them, one of the tracks is called um, "The Viaduct Love Suicide." I play these all these type of music on on my Saga radio show, which is on Two FM in Ireland, and it's an incredible record uh, about. Yeah, you have to look at the lyrics to to, to get what it means. It's just it's beautiful. Um, yeah, I, I just listen to so much music. It's crazy. Oh, give me give me a few from your formative years okay that's easy um i always go for this it'll be like devo freedom of choice uh john fox metamatic the damned machine gun etiquette probably my most listened to album ever um gets me through the gym gets me through tough periods in life um what else oh man honestly it's like it'd be like coming up to me on a spring day and saying what's your favorite whiskey and i'll be like Jeez, I can't tell you that. My favourite whiskey in spring is completely different than what it would be in autumn no, or summer. You've, so you've given us a few. I think we've, I think um, I think that's sufficient. I reckon. Okay, and we're not going to talk about production, Paul. I thought we'd go deep in production. No. Well, I mean, I, it was on my list of things, yeah. But then there's quite a few on the list that we we haven't done either. So maybe we can uh... do me a quick fire on on some production stuff. Just quick fire. Okay. Well, okay. So my, my basically my my production questions were really around. Like the the move from like just using outboards, and I mean we talked about it a bit actually. You talked about the kind of gradual move into working in the box. Yeah. But like, so what what is your setup now then? Like, is it, is it a kind of hybrid thing, or is it like do you do you have a kind of a few cherished bits of kit that you still use? How does it work? 
it's totally a hybrid thing. I've never been into synthesizers at all. Uh, I've never been into modular at all. I'm not putting people down for it. It's not my thing. Um, synthesizers, because I can't technically play the piano or anything, I've always felt a little bit weird sitting there with a fucking big keyboard. Like, it suggests that this person is musical, which to me absolutely upsets me because I know that I can't sit down and play anything apart from a few chords and that, that feels weird. So all my synths are soft synths always have been for the last, since 2005. So what, what, what are your, what's your favourite soft synth at the moment? At the moment? Uh, again, that really depends. Uh, I, I think Arturia is like really, really good. Um, yeah, they're great. Uh, yeah, I think is really, really good. Um, but I've got uh, like 1,900 plugins, I think, overall. So it really depends what mood I'm in, where I'm going and how this I is feel. A, this is a problem though, isn't it? No, it's not because uh, what, what I do is I actually make my own sections of, of plugins that are useful for certain things and then I can go there. Right. Um, I, I don't find it an issue at all, um, so I'm, I'm fine with that. And I don't really use compression as plugins. So are you are you quite are you quite organised then by the sound of things in the studio? Do you? Do you uh, s- yeah. Apparently, people that I work with in the studio say I have OCD in the studio, <laughs> which I'm actually okay. I'm abs- I'm absolutely okay with because it's my environment and it has to make sense. Um, so yeah, I'm very very particular about how everything fits in the studio. And inside the studio, inside the computer as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm you know, I'm very, very organised. I think it's important to be organised uh, because I think for, for, for personalities like me to be in chaos is actually a detraction and keeps you off the off, off the goal. Some people work exceptionally well in chaos. Um, you see it when you go to their office and their books are all over the place, but they're still on top of it. But for me, it's completely different. But I use uh, outboard compressors um, because I feel that still they are not, they don't sound exactly the way they should have to sound in in as a plugin. There is there is something. Let me let me let me talk talk to you about that in particular because there is some kind of secret sauce, isn't there? In a really really good outboard compressor. Yeah. There's just I don't. I mean, I've got a. I'm I'm sitting in front of a uh, a SSL G compressor, G bus. Yeah, and three eight four. It's, yeah. it's just. I mean, when I compare it to the like the UAD, there's a UAD. Um, emulator of it you're you're a big fan of uad i seem to remember i mean i i absolutely am and, and i do use their stuff all the time like, i think particularly their eqs are just brilliant but like i said like the, the emulator of this compressor does not stand up no to the to the original it's an effect it's an effect it's not a compressor in my mind it's an effect and this isn't having a go at you know any particular manufacturer of a plug-in this is how I feel about all plugins for compressors. The only one that genuinely escapes that is even tied with the Omnipressor. I think they've done that really, really well. Um, but generally, I find that all plug-in compressors, they can be used as an effect, but they don't feel like they're compressing in the same way. Um, but, maybe it's ego. But it's mad though, isn't it? Because it's like, it's just gain reduction. Theoretically, I mean. No, it's, yes. But no, it's also reaction. And actually, you would think that software plugins would be even more effective because technically like they can look ahead so much further just in the digits and the binary code of what's coming their way and prepare hey boys we've got a peak coming like yeah in three seconds you know, do you know what i'm saying yeah they can see what's coming their way so you think actually it could be even better but the re- because actually a compressor is actually reactive really even if it's an opto compressor it's still reacting to something that's happening and happened sure yeah by its very nature yeah of course exactly and and you think with a software compressor it'd be actually f- looking forward really far but that's what i mean about this kind of secret source right because it seems like when, when you have a i mean like for example the um uh 
like the DW Fern compressor, which is like just astronomically expensive, but it just seems to do something which is not game reduction, you know, like. Well, every every single physical compressor has its own um, own character, and generally, I leave the compressors pretty much in the same setting, and I set I send what I feel needs that compressor at that setting. Because it has, I have a sound on every single compressor, which I really enjoy using, but only on a certain source, uh, as in uh, S O U R C E, as opposed to S A U C E. So yeah, it's a certain source that I want. So maybe I want drums to go to this compressor, and I want synths to go to this compressor. And obviously, like the SSL three, uh, the SSL G three eight four, is like that was the glue compressor, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. That's the every, you know, and actually, it's not really the glue compressor anymore. Um, it, it does what it does, but it's quite conservative, uh, in, it doesn't really impart too much character. I prefer like maybe an STC eight, for example, because I feel that's a little bit more adventurous, but I still use a 384 because actually I like that to be on vocals, for example, because I find it has a a, a wonderful softness on, on, on vocals and it actually sounds quite natural. It doesn't feel asthmatic. And I think that's really, really important. So yeah, I feel, I feel physical compressors are great. I don't have so much emotion attached to EQ. I think EQ in the box is absolutely fine and perfect and actually also automatable, which is, you know, something which is very, very a, a massive dream. And I think people should learn to EQ and compress more so they don't do this side chaining so much. Yeah, totally. I mean, side chaining was some, um, God, I mean, <laughs> I'm glad that it's, kind of become less of a less of a thing because it did seem to t- take over yeah. music for a while didn't it it was basically the backbone of tech house right lots of other things too and then how do you do you mix in the box so i have a, a mixer but i actually set everything to a certain level and i do all the level changing inside the uh, inside the box um so i get the uh, the character of of the mixer uh, but I do all the level and gain staging inside the box. Right, so you're so you're summing basically externally. Like. Exactly, yeah. So I've got like forty channels of analog that I'm summing. Right. Uh, I can go. I can go to like fifty six if necessary. What, what's which which mixer is it? Uh, secret, actually. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Sorry about that. This big build up. So let's yeah. talk about production. Actually, it's a secret. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like to do all that stuff inside the box and I've got, uh, I, I, I don't have to freeze anything because I've got so much processing power. Um, it's interesting to see what's going to happen with UAD now, but that's another discussion. That's a nerd discussion. You mean in the, what, in the context of new, the new processors, which are just ridiculous and do you, do you even need DSP anymore? Is that kind of what you mean by that? Yeah, I feel a little bit disappointed by, by stuff because... Obviously, the technology has changed, so they have to react to that. There's no need to have DSP um, for most uh, computers now um, outside of the central core because the central core can actually cope with a lot of stuff quite easily now, whereas even four or five years ago, it was quite tricky, and obviously they were using old Texas shark processors, which are probably very difficult to get now. But, you know, I feel that the changeover doesn't feel quite right, and we're at this, this stage of because obviously those of us have been making music for a long time is we're used to buying something and then feeling like we own it. But the whole idea, and with photography, I have to basically rent Adobe. Mm. So it's like 10 euros a month or something. And and I'm, I'm okay with that. But the whole idea of actually renting plugins, I'm really not okay with at all. Mm. 
Um, but that, maybe that's my generation. I'm not sure, but I understand they have to go there because if you think about the income stream, the income stream is like, we've got a new plugin, everyone buys it, hopefully, and then that's their income. Whereas, and then they have to sort of budget that across the year or two years or maybe even three to support the plugin. Whereas if everyone pays a certain amount of money per month, then they have an income that they're aware of and they can still keep updating everything because they're aware of what's coming in. So it's a very tricky thing, but I'm a little bit nervous about the UAD because UAD was never really cheap. Um, And uh, I'm not sure. It feels feels like they're going in like a sort of plug-in alliance kind of direction. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, again, I'm sat in front of a uh, Apollo X8 and a... uh, (laughs) Um, Octo thing, so I've got so I've just got arrays of DSPs and an Apple M1 chip, so I've just got far too much power at the moment. But actually, it's kind of nice not having to worry about it because I was previously running a, a 2013 MacBook Pro and it was just like dying on me the whole time. So I'm, I'm kind of like I'm enjoying my the, the freedom that I've been afforded yeah. by uh, the excess of power. Okay, well that's interesting that you are uh, you kind of anticipate those kind of changes. I mean, like you've also written for sound on sound haven't you um in fact i read i read your um piece with with tony surgeon actually in my prep for my episode with him right sound on sound's a great magazine i have to say like i've i've read it from like really before i started making tunes just because i was interested in in the in the processes but i've, I've always found that like even though it's not always specific for electronic music and dance music it's just a great resource for just learning about shit you know yeah i, I find Sound and Sound has been the only magazine I think that I've consistently subscribed to both digitally now and, and physically in the past. Um, even when I moved to Holland, I used to get it sent to me. Um, I think the, the, I cheekily got onto Sound and Sound by complaining. Um, so what happened was they put Martin Garrix on the front cover. <laughs> and, I, and I wasn't against Martin Garrix. And subsequently, I met him afterwards, actually, which is quite funny. And I explained to him, I said, listen, nothing personal. It's not about you. It's about what I perceived was going on. And my, my point was with Sound and Sound that I felt that how could they, because they must realize that the majority of their readership, especially over the last 10 years, are electronic music producers, right? And that a large proportion of their readership would actually be real techno diehards, real house diehards, that have been making music. Of course they have EDM, but they've never seemed to really push real techno producers in there. And of course you've had future music, which have done that. Um, and maybe computer music have done that as well. And music technology, but you've never, and, and also audio, uh, audio technology in Australia, but you've never really had sound on sound. It almost felt like we, it felt to me anyway, that we were like a little dirty secret that you can't talk about. Right. And so I said, hang on a minute, you can't put Martin Garrix on the front cover when you basically ignored 30 years of techno house evolution, which has basically pushed the whole of, 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 of all the machines that we're using pretty much forward just on its own merit. And I just left that there, uh, like you do, like a fart in a lift or something. Uh, and I just left that there thinking nothing of it. And then all of a sudden, shitloads of people liked it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then what happened was is like they, they graciously got in contact with me. I didn't expect it. And they said, oh, well, what do you suggest then? I said, well, okay, well, maybe and this was at Corona times. And I thought, okay, well, let me write about some artists and, and see what, what happens. And maybe, you know, you can also do that. And they actually said yes. And 
So the first one I interviewed, John Fox, who has, all in fairness, been in that magazine, but that, I think, was maybe 20 years prior. But I wanted to do it as sort of like history. So I wanted to mention, you know, John, like very important to me and very important to the whole foundation of the British electronic music sound, without a doubt. And then I wanted to bring Surgeon in because for me, Surgeon, you know, he is a diehard producer and an interesting character and definitely should have been in Sound on Sound, I felt. And so it was sort of my duty to do that. Um, And again, I did this whole one of three thing like I did with Red One of Two and Three. I said, let me do three artists. And and they they allowed me to do so. And and then I've also done, uh, you know, like a little review on something. And I've I've done another review on something else, which hopefully will be in the next two months. And, you know, it just kept me going um, also through Corona to do something different and to keep another part of my brain working. And yeah, they were very fair about it and they did it. And I even managed to get one of my own photos that I took of Surgeon in there as well. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, I enjoyed the the pieces, definitely. And you're you're, you're right that um, uh, they basically did ignore (laughs) the entirety of quite a significant part of what they should be covering for ages. So it's, it's great that you did that. I think maybe they felt that Future Music and other magazines do that. So why should they get involved? I don't know. Um, I really don't know. You know, I mean, I'd like to do an interview there with some electro producers, for example, because I think actually electro producers really push the envelope um, in in a very, very deep way. Um, and I think, you know, they should be in there, but I'm back on the road now, so I don't really have so much uh, time to do that sort of stuff. But maybe, maybe I will, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I felt quite proud to sort of walk into my record shop seeing Sound and Sound. And I was in Helsinki recently and I was in the public library and they had a Sound and Sound in there and I took a photo. Look, it's even in the public library over here. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, Sound and Sound is, is, is the most consistent English audio magazine, uh, production magazine that we know and it's still going and I'm thankful for that. Anyway, thanks for doing this, man. It's been great. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. And let's hope my recording technique works on this microphone. Otherwise, we'll have to do it all over again. (laughs) As as a sound on sound journalist, I should definitely hope so, to be honest. (laughs) Thank you. See you later. Yeah, that was Dave Clark. And he lived up to my expectations in that conversation. Lots of fun, lots of interesting stuff. Lots of um, talking points. Lots of things to think about. Yeah, he's just someone who I've always found musically inspiring, yeah, absolutely, but also an inspiration in terms of the way he's able to step outside of music and express himself, express his opinions on other things. And obviously we got into quite a lot of different stuff there. So that was, um, yeah, highly enjoyable. And I hope you got as much out of it as I did, which was quite a lot, frankly. So, um, yeah. Another guest next week. I hope they can live up to Dave Clark. I'm pretty sure they will be able to, or at least have a have a stab at it. Anyway, that's a kind of a tall order. Just before we go, this week on Hot Flush and affiliated labels, 10th of June release date this Friday. So we have the next single from Closet Ye on her forthcoming EP, Simmer. So single number two is called Red Comet and it's a track that I really, really love. So um, look out for that on Friday, hotflush.bangham.com. And also on Friday, I have another track out. I've been talking about my collab track with Bakongo last few weeks, but I've got another track out. This time it's a remix of Glaskin, 
track entitled Hyder Groove One. It's my favorite track from their debut album from back in the last year. So it was great to be able to remix it. And I have to say, I'm very, very happy with the remix that I did. <laughs> so um, I would recommend you check it out when it comes out on Friday via their Bandcamp, yaletrip.bandcamp.com. I will be posting about it, obviously, of course. I'll post about it in our Hot Flush Bandcamp, and obviously, it'll be available on. Beatport and Spotify and Apple Music and all those things too. But yeah, it's 140 BPM is all I can say to you. Uh, and it's a lot of fun. So looking forward to uh, hearing what you think about that. You can do that in the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. Remember to leave us a viewer a rating. I mentioned that at the top, but um, we would be grateful. It's the most direct way you can say that you like the show. So um, yeah, please do that if you haven't done already. And um, yeah, follow that Spotify playlist with all of the music. Lots of Dave Clark tunes in there this week, of course, as well as all the episodes. So I think we're done here. Thanks for listening. This has been a great episode. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it too. And we'll be back same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving podcast. Thank you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.